We're going. We're going. We're live. Hot damn. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Pat Astoria. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. We're doing this in reverse order, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. You got to switch it up. So today, we are doing a very, very, very special episode. Not least because we're doing it in a pillow fort. Oh, yeah. We made Panastoria's pillow fort. I'm we so did. happy. We did. Makes so, me very happy. It's a little cramped right now, but we'll fix that eventually. Subscribing but, on Patreon gets us more space. Yes, it does. So if you want to do that, that'd be, that'd be dope. That'd be really awesome. And the other reason why it's a very special episode today is because we are talking about the moon landing, the Apollo 11 mission, which... I mean, yeah. So to preface that, though, it's going to be a real long episode because there's a lot of background to it. Apollo 11 didn't happen in a vacuum, so we're going to talk about the space race in general as well. Also because it's fun. Yeah. And... Yeah, we just, is cool. we just can't simply start out with jumping right into Apollo 11 without explaining everything in the background. Yeah. So this isn't exactly going to be Korean War um, yeah. weirdness, because all of it is actually related, but, you know, got to start somewhere. But I'd like to start with a quote from the famed novel From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. In spite of opinions of certain narrow-minded people who would shut up the human race upon this globe as within some magic circle which it must never outstep, we shall one day travel to the moon. The planets and the stars with the same facility, rapidity, and certainty as we now make the voyage from Liverpool to New York. And what's amazing about those words is they were written almost 100 years before humans landed on the moon. I mean, humans have been obsessed with going to the moon since the ancient times. I exactly. mean, the Greeks talked about going, you know, about the moon and being fascinated with space for a long time. So it's not new. I mean, we're still obsessed with going to space. Also, I'm, if I sound horrible, it's because I'm a little bit sick. So We're both, while Lindsay has a cold, I'm recovering from a cold. So we're, uh, we're going to get, get through this, though. It's going to be good. We're going to anchor on. Oh, my goodness. A little collapse, a little roof collapse. A little bit, but, you know, we can manage. It's It's fine. So during the Second World War, both the Axis and Allies spent a large amount of their resources in developing new technology and weaponry. So if you guys know, the computer is basically made from devices used during the Second World War. Jeeps were made during the Second World War, etc., etc. The other thing that was first really wasn't first created during the Second World War, but it was first used extensively, was rockets. I mean, this was the first time rockets were actually fired from planes, and rockets were used on planes, and rockets were used to, you know, be fired at towns and cities to level large portions of them. So of particular interest to the Soviets and the Americans were the rockets produced and launched by, the Na- by Nazi Germany. These were called the V-2 rockets, and they were the world's first long-range guided ballistic missile. And they were used, they were what, they were what is known as vengeance weapons, and they were to be fired on allied cities, mostly in the UK, because that's as far as they could go. And also, fuck the British, I guess. Yeah. They were used against the Allied cities um, following the massive bombing campaign on the German cities, which included the very tragic bombing of Dresden, in which if you hear descriptions of the city after the bombing, it's 
pretty horrific. It's super, yeah. I mean, they had to use flamethrowers to clear the swarms of flies that were just over the city. So that's pretty grim. So Operation Paperclip was the name given to an American-led secret program to recruit former Nazi scientists, engineers, and technicians in order to obtain their secrets about their various weapon programs, particularly the rockets. Because during the war, the Soviets and the Americans never trusted each other. It was more of a... Marriage of convenience. Exactly. Or necessity. Necessity, yeah. So... Both, I guess. Yeah, so both, by the time the war was drawing to a close, were already trying to think of ways to outmaneuver one another in terms of gaining intel, ground, and influence, and technology. But this is where Operation Paperclip comes in. So it was headed by the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency, or JIOA, and it was conducted on the ground by the Army CIC Special Agents And these people worked between 1945 and 1959 in order to procure these scientists before the Soviets were able to. It was literally a race to gather as many of these scientists as they possibly could. There's a lot of races between America and the USSR. None of them were like literal foot races. They were just, you know, the scary kind that can end end badly. Yeah, this is kind of a foot race. Yeah. I I mean, mean, like there was physical expanses, like physical tracts of land covered but you know not like a race out of like hey let's race each other it's like oh no we want world domination oh yeah god so president truman approved of this plan on september 3rd 1946 and agents quickly (coughs) worked to contact any scientists on the list that they had obtained at the same time the soviets had launched their own operation known as and i apologize for butchering this ozavikahim during which the NKVD, which is the predecessor of the infamous KGB, and members of the Red Army forcibly took 2,200 German specialists and their families, which totaled around 6,000 people, at gunpoint in the Soviet occupation zone within Germany with the same goal as the Americans, but they just did it a little differently. Yeah, they're just forcibly. Like, oh, we, we have guns. A lot of them. We have lots well, of guns. the difference is also that the scientists actually wanted to go to the Americans. So Operation Paperclip actually successfully recruited over 1,600 scientists from the rocket program. And uh, the operation is considered very controversial today, as many Nazi leaders were hired into the program despite their past crimes. No Nazi party official was ever tried for the previous crime, and the only one who was was later acquitted. Several of these people, including Walter Schreiber, were involved in human experimentation and never received justice for what they did. And uh, it even received a lot of criticism at the time because, I mean... People knew it. I mean, the Amer- a lot of Americans, they liberated concentration camps and liberated these facilities. And so people saw newsreels of, of these camps, and so they're rightfully a little outraged. Yeah, about- because Eisenhower said everyone needs to see this. So he filmed as much as he could and would show them around the United, have them shown around the United States. I mean, I think the American public was like, uh, we want Nazis, what? Yeah, very controversial. And it receives criticism from both the public and the media, of course. So newspapers actually continuously linked scientists to Nazi experiments. In fact, the Boston Globe. Back when Americans cared about Nazis. Yeah. I thought they were bad. Yeah. That's a sore spot right now. 
The Boston Globe underwent an extensive investigation which linked Walter Schreiber to the experiments conducted by Kurt Blom, who worked on the Nazis' biological weapons program, which... Fun days? Not if you're Jewish. No. These experiments included testing nerve gas and insecticides on human subjects to see what they would do. And he also collaborated with the notorious Unit 731 in which the Japanese conducted horrific experiments. And when I say horrific experiments, that's not doing it justice at all. This is literally like doing live vivisections on human beings. Ah. Tying people up to crosses and then testing landmines on them yeah yeah that that kind of horrific there's a lot more horrific things in there but i'm not going to go into them a lot of bad people yeah we don't want to make this a bummer episode it's not about the bad people no but also fuck them we have to start with the bad people unfortunately but here we are we always after public outcry of the revelations the u.s military actually aided schreiber to emigrate to argentina Bloom, on the other hand, worked for the American government until his death in 1969, and he was never prosecuted and never faced justice. Yeah. Well, that's unsurprising. Yeah. That's kind of where we are right now, but, I mean, at the same time, the Soviets were doing their own thing. Yeah, and I'm just munching on chips over here, so ignore that crunching noise. Anyway, so yeah, the Russians were obviously also working on their own stuff. The rocket program in the USSR had existed for a while. It wasn't exactly new. They'd had some success in the 1930s, launching solid fuel rockets, and that was largely headed up by one particularly brilliant Russian scientist. But the rocket program was sputtering near the end of the war as the Soviet army advanced towards Petamunda and where Werner von Braun's rocket research lab was. They discovered just how far behind they were. (laughs) Along the way, they actually discovered the shell of an abandoned V-2. So the Soviets kind of got a leg up on the Americans in that they got an actual V-2 rocket, The Americans just got the scientists, kind of. So when it was discovered, it was packed up and sent back to the Soviet Union for, you know, research, obviously. But it obviously became clear very soon that everything up until that point created by Soviet engineers was essentially inferior. That was a sore spot for the communists. Didn't really want to be outdone by the fascists, which I don't blame them. Um, (laughs) Let's be real here. Um, But it also became clear that there was a reason why the Soviet Union had fallen really far behind. And a big reason, or the reason for that, really, was that uh, Soviet brilliant engineers such as Valentin Glushko and Sergei Korolev were imprisoned by the NKVD during the Great Purge. Of course. Because, you know. As you do. As Stalin did. All the competent people got to go to jail. Um, they had been tried and sentenced to death, but they were never executed, so that was lucky. Because the other engineers they were arrested with died. So... That, you know, they got lucky. They didn't get executed. Korolev was sent to prison where he wrote many appeals to the authorities, including Uncle Joe himself. Old Mustaches tried to get him to let him out of prison. Uh, <laughs> didn't work, though, because Stalin is ruthless. So Korolev spent several months in a gold mine in Kolyma, which is a region in the far east of Russia bordered by the eastern Siberian Sea and the Arctic Ocean in the north and the Sea of Okhotsk in the south. So it's not a warm place. It's I've also heard, where a large number of the gulags were, and they were mostly all built by prisoners. There's a book uh, called Kalima, and yeah. the, the author of the book says that the name Kalima deserves to be as notorious as Auschwitz. Yeah, it's not a good place. So Korolev was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor, where obviously that would really not be good. Uh, work camp conditions were notoriously poor. There was inadequate food, clothing, and shelter, and thousands of prisoners died each month. Korolev himself sustained numerous injuries and lost both of his teeth from scurvy before being returned to Moscow in late 1939. 
And the reason for this is because in 1939, there was a new chief of the NKBD, Leverenti Beria, and he chose to retry Korolev on reduced charges. Korolev arrived late as a result of being roughly 5,568 kilometers away when the authorities were told of his arrest. Or, or, or sorry, when he was told of his retrial. So he was, you know, a little far away. <laughs> so his sentence was reduced to eight years to be served in a Sharashka penitentiary for intellectuals and the educated. So Sharashkas are essentially penitentiaries for smart people. So basically like slave labor camps for the intelligent. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... Yeah, better than a gulag, I guess. At least you get to do what you were trained to do. Scientists and engineers on these in these shrashkas worked on projects assigned by the Communist Party leadership. Central Design Bureau 29, so CKB 29, of the NKBD served as Andrei Tupolev, the famous um, engineer who designed all the Russian planes, Tupolev's. Korolev was brought to work there for his old mentor, actually, so Tupolev mentored him when he was in school, and... So it came full circle when they were all imprisoned and he got to work for him again. <laughs> um, during World War II, this Shrashka designed both the Tupolev Tu-2 bomber and the Petlikov Pe-2 dive bomber. The group moved several times, at least once, to avoid capture by the Germans. In 1942, he was moved to the Shrashka of Kazan OKB-16 under Vladimir Glushko. So it turns out Glushko and him had worked together for a long time. They were pals. And then they all got denounced together, but... It also then became known to Korolev that Glushko denounced him specifically. And so there was a lot of animosity between the two forever, but they worked together because, well, they didn't really have any choice. They were in jail. Uh, <laughs> let's be real. I think they also had a similar goal, but yeah. Jail. Forces you together. Yeah. So here Korolev and Glushko designed the rocket-assisted takeoff boosters for aircraft and the, RD, and the RD-1 kilohertz auxiliary rocket motor-tested in an unsuccessful fast-climb Lavochkin LA-7R aircraft. So they worked on rockets and things, but they were isolated from their families until 1944 when they were finally discharged by a special government decree. The charges against Korolev and I imagine the others were not actually technically dropped until 1957, though. So he was released in 1944, but like... Still a criminal, I guess. Uh, Korolev remained quiet about his experiences in the Gulag, though the time spent there clearly deeply affected him. He had a lifelong animosity with Blushko because he learned that he'd been denounced by him, which, that'd be such a shitty thing to discover. <laughs> like, your yeah. pal's the one who put you there, but, like, I mean, at the same time, there's some schadenfreude, because, like, he's also there with you. But yeah, I guess he really... didn't go to the camp, so I don't know. Anyway. No, apparently he had it quite cozy compared... Glushko did, yeah, because he denounced Korolev. That's yep. why he got a pretty cozy existence comparative to Korolev who had to go to Siberia. Very typical Soviet thing of like... Just throw each other fellow... under the bus. It's cool. Yeah. That's how we all survive. Yeah, so they worked together in the design bureau of the Aviation Commission. Actually, Korolev worked under Glushko for one more year after they were read, like released. And then they were commissioned by the Red Army with the rank... Or sorry, Korolev was commissioned by the Red Army with the rank of colonel in 1945. His first decoration was the Badge of Honor, awarded in 1945 for his work on the development of rocket motors for military aircraft, even though they failed. Uh, so back to the V-2 rocket. In September 1945, Korolev was brought to Germany along with many other experts to recover the technology of the rocket. Soviets placed a priority in reproducing lost documentation on the V-2, as well as studying the various parts and capturing manufacturing facilities. So they continued in East Germany until 1946, and that's when Operation Osakium, as... Jonah mentioned, happened when 6,000 people were removed from East Germany at gunpoint and sent to Russia, because that's the total number of the engineers and their families. About 6,000 people. Most of the German experts, though, with the exception of Helmut Grotrip, were 
engineers and technicians involved in wartime mass production of the V-2 and actually not directly involved with Werner von Braun, which is the more important information to have. So most of the leading rocket scientists surrendered to the Americans because the Russians had a pretty nasty reputation when they were liberating places as being awful and trying to murder everyone and retaliating. So yeah, the scientists didn't really want to be part of that shit and went to the Americans. So the Russians got 6,000 German scientists, but none of them were the scientists they actually needed. But Korolev was brilliant, so I guess it was fine. Stalin made rocket and missile development a national priority upon signing a decree on May 13th, 1946, because dictator's going to dictate. <laughs> and a new N-288 rocket and spacecraft center was created for that purpose in the suburbs of Moscow, where Korolev's team oversaw 170-plus German scientists, including Helmut Gotrip and Fritz Karl uh, Prekschat, in Branch 1 of N-288 on uh, Goroldalmia Island in Lake Seeger, or Seliger, sorry, about 200 kilometers away from Moscow. Their facility was surrounded by barbed wire and watchdogs. Boris Chertok, chief designer of guidance control systems, who was also Russian, did not, or did note, though, that the conditions on the island were actually better than any prisoner of war camp ever. He also noted that the married specialists, uh, the married German specialists, received two or three-room apartments while his family, like Chertok's own family, in Moscow, lived in a share four-room apartment where they each had about 260 square feet of space. Chertok was actually not a slave. He was just a regular Muscovite. So, really? like, the dirt, yeah. So, like, in Moscow, space is cramped. Always had been. You had to get special permission to live in Moscow. I think you actually still do. And space is cramped. You live in communal apartments. And so Chertok, like, generally, as just a Soviet citizen, had a shitty shared apartment. Whereas, like, the captured German scientists got nicer places on this island. So, interesting. Yeah, so the development of ballistic missiles was put under the control of Dmitry Ustinov through the decree signed by Stalin. Ustinov then appointed Korolev as chief designer of long-range missiles at the Special Design Bureau, OKB-1, of N-288. Korolev had excellent organizational abilities and demonstrated these by keeping the new facility running. It's, uh, it's a low bar, but the facility was highly dysfunctional and highly compartmental- compartmentalized, so keeping it going was actually like a feat. So Korolev actually did, by doing the basic thing of keeping the thing from failing, he uh, succeeded <laughs> and showed his skills there. They created blueprints from disassembled V2s and began producing a working replica of the rocket. This was designated the R1 and was first tested in October 1942. A total of 11 were launched with 5 hitting the target. This was similar to the German hit ratio and demonstrated the unreliability of the V2. So they think they got that far at least. In 1947, Korolev and Co. began working on more advanced designs with improvements in range and throw weight. The R2 doubled the range of the V2 as, and as the first design, or was the first design to utilize a separate warhead. This was followed by the R3, which had a range of 3,000 kilometers and thus could target England. The Soviets continued to utilize the Germans' expertise on the V2 for some time, but gave Grotrup and his team had no access to classified work of their Russian colleagues on new rocket technology, so... They had them there because they needed the help, but didn't want to include them in any of the new developments because that was a security risk, I guess. And that really hurt. And that included not being able to see production and testing facilities. So they had no idea what their work was actually being used for and how it was working, which is not really helpful as a scientist because you kind of need to observe shit. This hurt the morale of the German team a lot and limited their technical contributions. The Ministry of Defense eventually just decided to dissolve the German team in 1950 and repatriated the German engineers and their families between December 1951 and November 1953. So, like, they got to go home, at least. Yeah. I guess. To East Germany. Yay. Yeah. 
Glushko couldn't obtain the required thrust from the R3 engines, so the project was canceled in 1952. That same year, Korolev joined the Soviet Communist Party to request money for future projects, including the R5, with a more modest 1,200-kilometer range. It, was, it completed a first successful flight by 1953. The world's first intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, was the R7, Senyorka. This was a two-stage rocket with a maximum payload of 5.4 tons, sufficient to carry the Soviets' bulky nuclear bomb an impressive distance of 7,000 kilometers. After several failures, the R-7 successfully launched on August 21, 1957, and it sent a dummy payload to the Kamchatka Peninsula in the Far East, which is about 7,000 kilometers away from Moscow, give or take. I think maybe closer to six, but eh. Anyway. Because of Korolev's success, and because the Soviet Union had successfully created the ICBM before the U.S., he was nationally recognized by the Soviet Union, though his name was kept secret for security reasons. Unfortunately, due to later failures after initial success of the R-7, it was scrapped as it was not intended to be a practical weapon. I guess the Soviets didn't need to hit anything 7,000 kilometers away. Uh, but on, yet. Yet. But on April, in April 1957, Korolev was declared fully rehabilitated as the government acknowledged that his sentence was unjust. So... That's a win, I guess. Rehabilitated. But he did constantly fear for his life because of all the classified shit he knew. So, like, was he ever really free? Anyway, Korolev was keenly aware of the orbital possibilities of the rockets being designed as ICBMs, because he is not a dummy. Uh, he had previously brought up the idea of using the R-7 to launch a satellite into space to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, but it was rejected. The Communist Party was uninterested uninter until the United States press began discussing a possible satellite launch for the International Geophysical Year. While the U.S. government debated the idea of spending millions of dollars on this concept, Korolev's team had a clever idea and suggested the international prestige of launching a satellite before the U.S. could act. So, the spirit of Cold War competition turned out to be enough to secure approval for the project, and the satellite was designed and constructed in less than a month. Oh my god. Yeah. So, Sputnik 1 was a simple polished metal sphere about the size of a beach ball. It contained batteries powering a transmitter using four external communication antennas. Korolev personally managed the assembly at a hectic pace, and the satellite was placed in orbit using a rocket that had successfully launched only once before. So to say it was a hasty operation is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> um, Sputnik 1 was successfully completed and launched into space on October 4th, 1957. It was the first satellite of its kind. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev was initially bored with, quote, another Korolev rocket launch, end quote, but Sputnik lit up the world press and he was pleased with the success of the re and recognition. Because, yeah, of course he's going to take credit for that. He encouraged the launch of, more of a more sophisticated satellite less than a month later in time for the 40th anniversary of the October Revolution. Korolev and close associate Mstislav Keldyush went or wanted to up the ante by proposing the idea of putting a dog on board the second satellite. This caught the interest of the Soviet Academy of Science, and work on Sputnik 2 was underway. Sputnik 2 had six times the mass of Sputnik 1 and carried the dog Laika as payload. The entire vehicle was designed from scratch within four weeks, with no time for testing her quality checks, because science. It was successfully launched on November 3rd, and Laika was placed into orbit. Unfortunately, she died after five hours in space due to heat exhaustion, and there was no mechanism to bring the dog back to Earth in the first place. So that was sad. Yeah, but, dog. But, oh well, I guess. Either way, Korolev had been dreaming of putting a human into space for a long time, and yeah, so we'll get there. We'll get there. We have to go back a bit because we keep. We're gonna jump around a lot in this episode. Just be warned. Yeah, because this all happens simultaneously. I mean, yeah, these are happening simultaneously. Like the, it's called the space race for a reason, and it's because they're literally trying to race 
Uh, well, that's okay. <laughs> no shit, Captain <laughs> Obvious. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just got a funny text from my friend since we're in a pillow fort. She said, Panhistoria, the Pillow Fort Years, will be, the first com- will be your first compilation album. So stay tuned for Panhistoria, the Pillow Fort Years. Or our first emo album. Anyway. Uh, von Braun, German. Von Braun, yeah, sorry. So yeah, Lindsay's mentioned von Braun, the name Werner Von Braun a couple times now. And you're probably wondering, who is Werner Von Braun? Well, he's actually very important to... Unless you already know who he is, in which yeah, case. Which in case... You know. Just, just... Don't tell anyone. Yeah, spoilers. But he's basically the founding father of, like, modern rocketry, as it is. So he was actually at the center of the V2 program, and he joined the Nazi party in 1937 when he was a graduate student, not out of ideological reasons, but as a career move. I mean, Oscar Schindler did the exact same thing. It's much like Korolev joining the Communist Party after he got out of jail. Yeah, or, yeah, and... Same shit. Pretty much. Gotta do what you gotta do. Von Braun received his doctorate in physics as an aerospace engineer, which is interesting to think that as far back as 1937, that was a thing. While writing his thesis, he and his team had successfully launched two liquid-fueled rockets as high as 2.2 kilometers and 3.5 kilometers into the sky, which is pretty decent. I mean, for that standard of that time of day. Von Braun, as well as many of the other German scientists, frequently contacted American physicist Robert H. Goddard with questions regarding his research and builds. Von Braun later used Goddard's plans he obtained from his journals in order to construct the components used in the V-2 rockets. After a V-2 rocket crashed in Sweden, some of the remaining parts were shipped to Annapolis, Maryland, where Goddard's lab was actually located. Goddard became horrified when he discovered much of the parts used in the rockets were that of his own design, and he reported this to his superiors. However, von Braun would deny using Goddard's designs, and it has been confirmed over 20 patents were made personally by von Braun himself. The idea of von Braun using Goddard's components is still disputed, although it does seem quite credible if you see, if you read the full picture about it. Hmm. Much of the rocket program's construction was conducted via slave labor under the supervision of SS General Hans Kammler, who was the architect behind various concentration camps, including Auschwitz. So you can tell just by that name what kind of person Kammler is. Yeah. So as a labor shortage in 1943 led to the chief engineer of the V2 rocket factory in Penamund, Penamunda, Arthur Rudolph, to welcome the idea of slave labor in production of the V2 rockets. Von Braun admitted he made several visits to the factories using slave labor, and he privately later publicly declared his disgust at the abhorrent conditions the workers were subjected to. He would later claim to have never seen any deaths or beatings, but acknowledged he became aware of deaths at the hands of the Nazi regime, including in their factories, in 1944. It should be noted former prisoners did testify to witnessing von Braun either engaging in or approving of brutal treatment they were subjected to. And there is speculation that this is actually a case of mistaken identity, as there is another 
prominent scientist, I could not find the name of him, who was bear a striking resemblance to Von Braun, although at this Honestly, point, like, I kind of wonder if that's the type of story that, like, the Americans might bring up to be it, like, he's not evil, I swear. It, it's, po- it's possible, but, like, when you hear about work he did in his later life, it kind of rings true, but anyway. Yeah. So for the remainder of his life, Von Braun would claim feeling disgusted and horror at the treatment of the prisoners and felt he was unable to help as speaking out would have led to severe consequences, which is not, it's it's convincing because. Yeah. It's not wrong. It's definitely not wrong. So I These don't know. very complicated figures. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of in a, I'm kind of in a position to kind of believe him, but. I also understand, like, if they're, like, if, of course, if something comes out and turns out he was fully responsible for this kind of stuff, I'll put my hands up and admit my mistake, but. I mean, I think the problem is we're just never going to know. No, he's, spoilers, he's been long dead. And I think anything that might have been known would have come out by now, but. So in the closing days of the war, Von Braun traveled with hundreds of his colleagues to the Western Front in order to surrender to the U.S. Army, not wanting to surrender to the Soviet Army for good reasons. As part of Paperclip, the men were flown to Fort Bliss, Texas, almost immediately. (laughs) During the Korean War, he was transferred to Alabama, where he began working with the Redstone Arsenal, for which he helped develop... the first live nuclear ballistic missiles for the U.S. So if you ever wonder where the are like the current nuclear arsenal, I mean they're not the same rockets, obviously, but he was responsible for creating the first nuclear rockets. However, von Braun's real dream was to launch something into space. He actually famously said when asked about the V2 program, he said, "Quote: The rocket worked perfectly, except for landing on the wrong planet." End quote. That's just the kind of humor he had, obviously. And he would make statements like that all throughout his career. But he really wanted to send something into space. Like, it it had been his dream since he was a child. In 1952, Von Braun wrote several articles for Collier's weekly magazine called Man Will Conquer Space Soon. These articles became widely popular and helped increase public interest in space exploration. (laughs) <laughs> However, do you know who wasn't very interested in space, his idea of space exploration? The government. Yeah. Yeah. So unlike his Soviet counterpart, von Braun's ideas of space travel were not taken seriously by the U.S. military, and he struggled to get funding in order to create a rocket fast enough to reach space. He became extremely frustrated, as pretty much any human being would, and he actually found an unlikely ally in, drumroll please... Walt Disney. Thank you, Lindsay. I tried. But Walt Disney. I was a little late. No, nah, it's okay. Yeah. But yeah, Walt Disney was actually a really big fan of Von Braun's articles, and they inspired Disney to actually... Isn't Disney produ- also a fan of Nazis, kind of, too? It's still debated. So... In this case, Disney's good. But yeah. So Disney, Disney actually produced a video trilogy for the newly opened Disneyland, because Disneyland had opened around this time. The first film was called Man in Space, which is a humorous education film giving an overview of rocket history, followed by a discussion of satellites and a segment detailing the physical and psychological effects a human would experience in space. 
The next episode was called Man on and the Moon, during which Von Braun himself appeared and explained the planned stages of how humans would use Earth's pull of gravity aided by rocket propulsion to send a rocket on a trajectory to the moon. All of you guys who have watched our trailer, that bit at the beginning is an excerpt from Man and the Moon. And that is like that is Von Braun himself speaking. The final video was about the possibility of traveling to Mars and was called Mars and Beyond. These specials were televised and as a result, Von Braun became a household name and the tactic actually worked. Soon, President Dwight Eisenhower approved the beginning of an American satellite program. I want to quickly note here that this is how much Disney loved Von Braun. They worked together for a few years. But uh, if you guys know the character Ludwig von... Uh, I can't remember his name. He's one of the ducks. Yeah. Ludwig von something uh, is based off of Von Braun. Like the guy is completely obsessed with Lindsay's looking that up for me. Von Drake. Yeah. Dr. Ludwig von Drake is based off of Werner von Braun. And Ludwig von... Professor Ludwig von Braun. Professor, sorry. Professor Ludwig von Braun. Or Professor Ludwig Ludwig von Von Drake. I mean, they're one and the same. It's fine. Pretty much. But yeah, they're they're basically... He's basically a duck version of Werner von Braun. And one of my favorite characters, because I love Donald Duck, but I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's really cute. Duck Tales. Ooh. <laughs> I tried. The Americans were unable to launch their own satellite before Sputnik and Laika due to competition between the military branches, because that's a thing. A yep. thing. So initially it was the Navy, for whatever reason, stepped up with the rocket Vanguard TB3. On December 6, 1957, its launch failed and it collapsed into a fireball on the launch site. That's what you want. It was later determined to be the result of rushed and mediocre production. Also, I should mention that the reason... I I was talking to my dad about this and he said probably the reason why the Navy really wanted this is so they could get the funding. Yeah. I mean, that's usually how things work. Yeah. Well, it's always a competition for funding. Oh, yeah. And this is, oh, this is, this is so, so, so funny. To add, further add to the burn, Khrushchev is quoted as saying, quote, the United States sleeps under a Soviet moon, end quote. Burn! Pretty savage. It's the, uh, it's the Kelso from that 70s show, Burn Gif, right now. Just oh, yeah. Burn! Humiliated, the American government gave Von Braun permission to move forward with his planned rocket. Explorer 1 launched on January 31st, 1958 without issue and was able to place an actual satellite into orbit which was capable of collecting and transmitting scientific data. Unlike Sputnik, which just beeped to let let them know what its position was. Sputnik was just there. Yeah. This this satellite actually collected data from space. Yeah. But like I said, Sputnik's entire purpose was just to shove it, like stick it to the Americans. Pretty much. But yeah, Sputnik just beeped. This but thing Sputnik actually, too had a dog. That is true. So that died. But anyway, this uh, Rest in peace, Laika. so this uh, this is the first satellite to actually collect data mm. and from space that that could be used for, you know, education or yeah for things for things hashtag science yeah. So as you can see, he Von Braun worked fast to correct all the mistakes that the Navy made and was able to actually successfully do it. I mean, he'd been again, doing this his whole entire life. Not almost. an idiot. No. 
and not rushing things. I mean, it was rushed, but he knew what he was doing. He was at least smart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not to say that the Navy's full of dumb people, just that they're not Bernard von Braun. Yeah. And the United States took note of this massive success, and the U.S. government granted the appropriated funding for von Braun's space program. And on July 20. 29th, 1958, the National Aeronautic and Space Administration was established. Von Braun had officially created NASA. Woo! And he became its first director on July 1st, 1960, until, and remained there until his retirement on January 27th, 1970. Aside from space exploration, Von Braun was actually a major figure in the desegregation movement. Yeah. He was staunchly... Integrationalist, I guess. Is that the right term? Integrationist? Yeah. Or de- I don't really know. Desegregationist. Desegregationist. That's probably the better. That's probably, like the, yeah. yeah. But he was staunchly against segregation, particularly because one of the major space facilities that NASA owned was in Alabama. Also in Virginia, which was also segregated. Yeah. Well, all in the Pretty South. Pretty much all in the South. Yeah. Florida, Texas. Virginia. Virginia. Alabama. Alabama. But Alabama was particularly Bad. contentious because it, enter George Wallace. George Wallace, the Alabama governor famous for saying segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. What a dick. I know. Von Braun saw an opportunity to get somewhere about desegregation when Alabama Governor George Wallace visited the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama in June 1965. Von Braun met with Wallace and his entourage and showed them a test of the Saturn V rockets in its first stage. Following the test, Von Braun met with the audience in the visitor's area, and he and NASA Administrator James Webb gave a speech on the importance of racial acceptance. They argued the importance of granting African Americans the same opportunities, with Von Braun saying, quote, The era belongs to those who can shed the shackles of the past. In turn, this inspired President Johnson in using NASA as a template and ending workplace discrimination, particularly in federal jurisdictions. Because NASA could effectively end segregation in their own facilities because it was a federal. Yeah. That's kind of where I feel maybe Von Braun wasn't... Actually a horrible person. Actually a horrible person. Because he did, like, for an extended period of time, like, on top of getting humans into space which we're about to get to, he actively worked to try to use this program to help the desegregation movement and, and the Jim Crow self and humiliate George Wallace because yeah. he wasn't afraid to stand up to George Wallace. Like George Wallace is a very in your face kind of guy and Von Braun just wouldn't back down. Yeah. So go, go Von Braun. Yeah, I mean, I'll take that. Yeah, but speaking of men getting into space... Fucking George Wallace. What a guy. I know. He did not go to space, though, thankfully. No. <laughs> um, that's a good thing. Good thing that George Wallace didn't end up in space. Or maybe we should have jettisoned him to space. I don't know. Without a suit? Yeah. No, well, I don't know. Anyway, let's just get off that line of thinking. Um, <laughs> yeah, so as I said, Korolev had actually been dreaming of putting a human into space since as early as 1948, but his planning for the piloted mission began in 1958 with the design studies for the future of the Vostok space program. Or spacecraft, sorry. The Vostok program was a thing. Uh, anyway. It was to hold the single passenger in a spacesuit and be fully automated. The spacesuit the space was 80% nitrogen and only 20% oxygen, unlike the United States spacesuit that was 100% oxygen. The capsule had 
had an escape mechanism for problems prior to launch and a soft landing and ejection system during the recovery. The space, spacecraft was spherical, just like the Sputnik design. Korolev explained this by saying, quote, the spherical shape would be more stable dynamically. Whatever that actually means. <laughs> um, in 1950, or, sorry, on May 15, 1960, an unmanned prototype performed 64 orbits of Earth, but the re-entry maneuver failed. On July 28, 1960, two dogs by the name of Chaika and Lashika, or Lashika, sorry, were launched into space, but the mission was unsuccessful when an explosion killed the dogs. Not so a they lot of sacrificed yeah. a lot of dogs. Yeah, um, yeah. But mm. they had success soon after. On August 19th, the USSR became the first country to successfully recover living creatures back to Earth. The dogs Belka and Strelka were successfully launched into space on a Vostok spacecraft, and they completed 18 orbits. The Soviet Union ended up sending a total of six dogs into space, two in pairs, and two paired with a dummy. Unfortunately, not all the missions were successful, but hey, they brought back Belka and Strelka. So, that's something. Uh, Finally, though, government approval was given on a modified version of Korolev's R-7 rocket would be used to launch the first man into space. The man they chose was Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Gagarin was born on March 9th, 1934, in the village of Klishino, now known as Gagarin, in Smolensk Oblast. His parents worked on a, on a collective farm, Alexei Gagarin as a carpenter and Anna Gagarina as a dairy farmer. Like millions of Soviets, the Gagarins suffered under Nazi occupation during World War II. Klishino was occupied in November 1941 during the German advance on Moscow, and a German officer took the Gagarin residence. The family was allowed to build a mud hut approximately three meters by three meters, so slightly bigger than the pillow fort we're in, (laughs) inside on the land behind their house, where they spent 21 months until the end of the occupation. So, like, they lived in a mud hut behind their own house, as a German lived in their their house. So that's adding insult to injury, amongst other things. His two older siblings were deported to Poland for slave labor until 1943, and did not return until after the war in 1944. Sorry, 1945. Oh, my God. In 1946, the family moved to Gzatsk, which, I guess, it's kind of confusing because Gzatsk and Klushino are very close together and both are kind of called Gagarin and, like, referred to as the same place. (laughs) But, um, anyway. In 1950, at the age of 16, Gagarin began an apprenticeship as a foundryman at a steel plant near Moscow in Libertsy. He completed his schooling and finished his vocational schooling in 1951 with honors in mold-making and foundry work and was selected for further training at the Saratov Industrial Technical School where he studied tractors. While, the, while there, he volunteered at a local flying club for weekend training as a Soviet air cadet, where he learned to fly a biplane and a Yak-18. He earned extra money as a dock laborer on the Volga River. So he was a man of many hats. Uh, in 1955, Gagarin, Gagarin was accepted into the first Tchaikovsky, or Tchaikovsky, 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 Higher Air Force Pilot School, a flight, during, a flight school in Orenburg near the Kazakh board, Kazakhstan border. He initially began training on the Yak-18, which was famili- already familiar to him, and later graduated to a MiG-15 in February 1956. He struggled to land the two-seater and risked dismissal from flight school, but he was given another chance and a cushion to sit on, which improved his view from the cockpit, and therefore he was successful and able to begin flying solo missions in 1957, so Gagarin was just too short to fly the plane. Wow. <laughs> Perfect astronaut. Uh, no, <laughs> or cosmonaut, sorry. On November 5, 1957, Gagarin was commissioned a lieutenant in the Soviet Air Force, having ac- accumulated 166 hours and 47 minutes of flight time, so not a lot. He graduated flight school the next day and was posted to the Luotasari Air Base, close to the Norwegian border in Murmansk Oblast, for a two-year assignment with the Northern Fleet. So he went somewhere real fucking cold. He was recommended to the Soviet pro- space program by Lieutenant Colonel Babushkin in 1959 after expressing interest in space flight. 
By this time, he'd accumulated 265 total hours of flight time. So, again, still not a lot. He was promoted to the rank of senior lieutenant on November 6, 1959, three weeks after he was interviewed by a medical commission for qualification to the space program. The Vostok program was overseen by the Central Flight Medical Condition, led by Major Konstantin Fyodorovich Borodin of the Soviet Army Medical Service. Korolev decided that the cosmonauts must be male, between the ages of 25 and 30, so that's not a very big range. <laughs> no taller than 1.75 meters, so about 5 foot 7, and weighed no more than 72 kilograms, so about 157 pounds. The final specifications were approved in June 1959, and interviews with possible cosmonauts had begun by September. I'm also just going to say for the record, I think cosmonaut is a way cooler title than astronaut, but that's just me personally. Over 200 candidates made it through the interview process, and by October, a series of demanding physical tests were conducted on those remaining. These included exposure to low pressures and a centrifuge test, neither of which sounded like fun. By the end of 1959, 20 men had been selected. Korolev insisted on having a larger group than NASA's astronaut team of seven. Of these 20, five were out, outside the desired age range, hence the age requirement was kind of relaxed. Unlike NASA's group, this group did not necessarily consist of experienced pilots. Belyaev was the most experienced pilot with 900 flying hours, which is still not that many <laughs> comparative to some of the American pilots that were in the astronaut program. The Soviet space spacecraft was a lot more automated, though, and that's actually why the flying experience wasn't really as necessary. They just needed someone who could physically survive right. and also fit in the thing. <laughs> so your physical requirements were a little more important. On January 11th, 1960, Soviet Chief Marshal of Aviation Konstantin Vershinin approved plans to establish the Cosmonaut Training Center, whose exclusive purpose would be to prepare the cosmonauts for their upcoming flights. Initially, the facility would have 200 staff, 250 staff. Vershinin assigned the already famous aviator Nikolai Kamanin to supervise operations at the facility. By March, most of the cosmonauts had arrived at the training facility. Vershinin gave a welcome speech on March 7th, and those who had arrived were formally inducted into the cosmonaut group. By mid-June, they were all there. The cosmonauts were started on a daily fitness regime and were taught in subjects such as rocket space systems, navigation, geophysics, and astronomy. So they got educated. There were size constraints at the facility, however, and the cosmonauts and staff were relocated to a new facility in Zeleny, now known as Star City, in Zvozny, Gorodok, Moscow Oblast. And it was, they were really relocated on June 29, 1960. This new facility at the time has actually remained the home of the Russian cosmonaut program for over 50 years. Um, in the 1960s, it was renamed the Yuri Gagarin Training Center because Gagarin got everything named after him after he was the first man in space. So that's fair. Yeah. The spacecraft simulator was built at the Gromov Flight Research Institute and called the TDK-1. Because it was inefficient for all 20 cosmonauts to use the simulator, they decided on six candidates who would go through accelerated training. So they wanted 20, and then they're like, oh, fuck, it's too many. Six will do. Uh, this group would be known as the Vanguard Six, and they were decided on on May 30th, 1960. The Vanguard Six initially consisted of Gagarin, Karatsov, Nikolaev, Popovich, Titov, and Varlamov. It has been recounted by a few others that these six were the shortest of the 20. So that's really what mattered, I guess. <laughs> In July, after the relocation to Star City, two of the six men were replaced on medical grounds. The first happened during a centrifuge test of 8Gs when Kardashev experienced some internal damage causing minor hemorrhaging in his back. Oof. Woof. The second happened during a swimming accident. Varlamov dove into a lake near the training center and smacked his head on the bottom and displaced a cervical vertebrae. Oh. So, yeah. 
Idiots. Well, not really their fault, I guess. Well, it was kind of Varlamov's own fault for diving into the lake, but yeah. not really Kardashev's fault for just almost dying in a center abuse test. By the end of July, their six were Gagarin, Baikovsky, Nelibov, Nikolaev, and Titov. In January 1961, these six had all finished parachute and recovery training, as well as three-day regimes and simulators. On January 17th, the six participated in their final exams, including time spent in a simulator and a written test. Based on these exams, a commission supervised by Kamenin recommended the use of the cosmonauts in the following order. Gagarin, Titov, Nelyubov, Nikolaev, Baikovsky, and Popovich. At this stage, Gagarin was the clear favorite to be the first man in space, not only based on his exams, but also among an informal peer evaluation. So all the other astronauts liked him, or cosmonauts liked him. So that was nice. Apparently Gagarin was a good dude. So in the mid-1950s, the Soviets learned that the Americans could launch a suborbital human spaceflight as early as January 1961. Korolev saw that as an important deadline, and he was determined to launch a crewed orbital mission before the Americans could launch their suborbital flight. By 19, April 1960, designers at Korolev's design bureau, then known as OKB-1, had completed a draft for the first Vostok spacecraft called Vostok 1K. This design would be used for testing purposes. Also in their plan was Vostok 2K, a spy satellite that would later become known as Zenit 2, and Vostok 3K, which would be used for all six crewed Vostok missions. Despite the very large geographical size of the USSR, there was some limitations to monitoring orbital space flights from ground stations within the country. So to rectify this, the Soviets stationed seven, seven, naval base, seven naval vessels, or tracking ships, around the world. For each tracking point, the duration of communications with an orbiting spacecraft was limited to between 5 and 10 minutes, so a pretty small window. On April 12, 1961, at 6.07 a.m. UTC, the Vostok 3KA-3, a.k.a. Vostok 1, spacecraft launched from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Aboard the craft was Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin, the first human to travel into space, using the call sign Kyeter, which means cedar. The, or actually, specifically means Siberian cedar. Um, the radio communication between the launch control room and Gagarin included the following dialogue at the moment of the rocket launch. Korolev, preliminary stage. Intermediate, main, liftoff. We wish you a good flight. Everything's all right. Gagarin, off we go. Goodbye until we meet soon, dear friends. Gagarin's farewell to Korolev used the informal phrase poyekali, which is an informal way to say goodbye, essentially, and became a popular expression in the Eastern Bloc and was used to refer to the beginning of the space age, actually. <laughs> so Gagarin's farewell to Korolev became the expression used to discuss the space age in Eastern Europe, which is pretty fun. Uh, the first five stage engines fired until the final separation event when the four side boosters fell away, leaving the core engine. The core stage then separated while the rocket was in a suborbital trajectory, and the upper stage carried it to orbit. Once the upper sta stage finished firing, it separated from the spacecraft, which or orbited for 108 minutes before returning to Earth with Gagarin in Kazakhstan, and Gagarin became the first human to orbit the Earth. Gagarin wrote in his post-flight report that, quote, The feeling of weightlessness was somewhat unfamiliar compared with Earth conditions. Here you feel as if you're, you were hanging in a horizontal position in straps. You feel as if you are suspended. Gagarin was qualified as a military pilot first class and promoted to the rank of major in a special order given during his flight. 
So he took off as a lieutenant and landed as a major. Wow. At 23,000 feet, so about 7,000 meters, Gagarin ejected from the descending capsule and capsule as planned and landed as a parachute. So the thing about this is that there was a concern that Gagarin's spaceflight record would not be recorded by the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, FAI, the world governing body for setting records, setting standards and keeping records in the field. Because at the time, the FAI required that the pilot land with his craft. So Gagarin and the Soviets initially refused to admit that he had not landed with his spacecraft, an omission which became apparent when Titov flew on Vostok 2 four months later and landed separate from the craft. Ah. Gagarin's spaceflight records were nonetheless certified and again reaffirmed by the FAI, which revised its rules, and acknowledged that the crucial steps of the safe launch, orbit, and return of the pilot had been accomplished. So, therefore, Yuri Gagarin is recognized as the first human in space and the first to orbit the Earth. Uh, The first flight was a triumph for the Soviet space program, and he became a national hero of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, as well as a worldwide celebrity. Newspapers around the world published his biography and the details of his flight. He was escorted in a long motorcade of high-ranking officials through the streets of Moscow to the Kremlin, where in a lavish ceremony, Nikita Khrushchev awarded him the title of Hero of the Soviet Union. Gagarin gained a reputation as an adept public figure and was noted for his charismatic smile, which if you've seen pictures, it was a very nice smile. On April 15, 1961, accompanied by officials from the Soviet Academy of Sciences, he answered questions at a press conference in Moscow, reportedly attended by a thousand reporters. Gagarin visited the UK three, time, three months after Vostok 1, going to London and Manchester. While he was in Manchester, he refused an umbrella despite heavy rain and insisted that the roof of the convertible car he was riding in remain open, and he stood so the cheering crowds could see him. So he was a people's, he was a people's man. He loved the crowds. Gagarin toured widely, accepting the invitation of about 30 countries in the years following his flight. In the first four months, he went to Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, Cuba, Czechoslovakia, Finland, Hungary, and Iceland. But because of his instant rise to fame, John F. Kennedy barred Gagarin from visiting the United States. Because JFK was not letting that commie in the country. In 1962, Gagarin began serving as a deputy to the USSR and was elected to the Central Committee of the Young Communist League. He later returned to Star City, where he spent several years working on designs for a reusable spacecraft. He became a lieutenant colonel of the Soviet Air Force on June 12, 1962, and received the rank of colonel in November 1963. On December 20, 1963, he became the deputy training director of Star City Cosmonaut Training Base. So really just, you know, taking the world by, the, by, the, by storm. Being the first man in space affords you a lot of privilege. Yeah. Soviet officials, including Kamenin, though, tried to keep Gagarin away from any flights for fear of losing their hero in an accident, noting that, quote, he was too dear to mankind to risk his life for the sake of an ordinary space flight. That didn't really excite Gagarin, though, because he really missed flying and wanted to go back to space. Uh, two years later, he was re-elected as, the depu- as a deputy of the Soviet Union, but this time to the Soviet of nationalities, the upper chamber of the legislature. The following year, though, he began to requalify as a fired fighter pilot and was a backup pilot for his friend Vladimir Komarov on the first Soyuz flight. Gagarin was close to the pilot who flew in Soyuz and was sort of part of that mission, which we'll explain as we get to Soyuz in a bit. But uh, he was banned from flying aircraft solo, which was a demotion that he found really... He hated it. And it was a demotion only because they were trying to protect him. It wasn't really because he was not capable. It was just that they didn't want him flying. Yeah. (laughs) So he worked really hard to lift that. 
He was temporarily, temporarily relieved of his duties to focus on academics with the promise he would be able to resume flight training if when he finished. So on February 17, 1968, he successfully defended his aerospace engineering thesis on the subject of space plane aerodynamic configuration and graduated from Zhukovsky Air Force Engineering Academy. So he was also a smart dude, apparently. On March 27, 1968, while on a routine training flight from Zhukovsky Air Base, Gagarin and flight instructor Vladimir Sergoyan, or Seryogin, sorry, died when their MiG-15 crashed near the town of Kirzhak. So the bodies of Gagarin and Suryogin were cremated and their ashes interned in the walls of the Kremlin. The reasons, or the cause of the crash for that killed Gagarin are pretty uncertain, and they became the subject of several theories. So at least three investigations into the crash, into the crash were conducted separately by the Air Force, government commissions, and the KGB, because of course. Um, according to a biography of Gagarin by Jamie Doran and Pierce Bizzoni, called Starman, the truth behind the legend of Yuri Gagarin. The KGB worked not just, quote, not just alongside the Air Force and the official commission members, but against them. So that's how the KGB does. The KGB's report was declassified in 2003, and it dismissed various conspiracy theories and instead indicated that the actions of airbase personnel contributed to the crash. The report states that an air traffic controller provided Gagarin with an outdated weather information and that by the time of the, his flight, conditions had deteriorated significantly. Ground crew also left external fuel tanks attached to the aircraft. Gagarin's planned flight activities needed clear weather and no outboard tanks. The investigation concluded that Gagarin's aircraft entered a spin either due to a bird strike or because of a sudden move to avoid another aircraft. Because of the out-of-date weather report, the crew believed their altitude was higher than it was and could not react properly to bring the MiG-15 out of its spin. Another theory advanced in 2005 by the original crash investigator hypothesizes that a cabin air vent was accidentally left open by the crew on or the previous pilot, and that led to oxygen deprivation and left the crew incapable of controlling the aircraft. In April 2007, the Kremlin vetoed a new investigation into his death, so people still want to know why he died exactly. Uh, government officials said they saw no reason, to be, no reason to begin a new investigation, which is fair. Yeah. You know, like, really, what are you going to find at this point? Um, in April 2011, documents from a 1968 commission set up by the Central Committee of the Communist Party to investigate the accident were declassified. The documents revealed that the commission's original conclusion was that Gagarin or Suryogin had maneuvered sharply to avoid an, a weather balloon or to avoid, quote, entry into the upper limit of the first layer of cloud cover, uh, leading the jet into a supercritical flight regime and to its stalling in complex meteorological conditions. So... A lot of theories as to why it happened, but either way, Gagarin passed away, sadly, just like seven years after he was the first man in space. So it's definitely a, 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 sad, a sad thing. Yeah, really. Um, but I was like fortunate enough to be in Russia for the anniversary of his flight in 2014. Yeah, 2014. And uh, it was pretty cool being in Moscow, like when everyone's kind of, there's big celebrations still, and I went to the... The uh, the monument to the to the cosmonauts. It was pretty pretty neat. So that's that's Gagarin. Space Notice that we haven't really talked about the moon. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting there. Sorry, fam. We'll get there. There's lots of time. Maybe we should explain what is the moon. No. Yeah. No. The moon is just a is a natural satellite that goes around the Earth, and they think that it might have detached from the Earth at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone who knows more can explain it to me, but I kind of I feel like we don't need to talk about the moon too necessary. much. No, we will in a bit. We'll get there. 
We'll talk about the moon when we get to when we get when to we the get moon. to the moon. Yeah, yeah. Lindsay and I are announcing today we are going to the anyway. Panastoria goes to the moon. Anyway. <laughs> it's like earnest. It's like an earnest film. Anyway. <laughs> so the Soviets had Gagarin, and the United States had Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard was born on November eighteenth, nineteen twenty-three, in Derry, New Hampshire. His father, Alan B. Shepard, Sr., worked for the National Bank and served in the American Expeditionary Force during World War I. So, fun fact. Mm. So, Shepard Jr. attended Adams School in Derry, where he impressed with his academics, so much so that he was actually able to skip the sixth grade and proceeded straight to middle school, where he then skipped the eighth grade. Because, smart, I guess. He achieved the Boy Scouts of America rank of first-class scout. Uh, in 1936, he went to the Pinkerton Academy, a private school in Derry that his father had attended and where his grandfather had been a trustee. He completed grades 9 to 12 there. He was fascinated by planes and created a model airplane club at the Academy, and his uh, Christmas present in 1938 was a flight in a Douglas DC-3. So that's... I, it's, it's funny to me that, like, back then it was, like, such an experience just to get to go in an airplane. Yeah, and, like, I know. now I'm like... That's my Christmas present. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I was talking to my grandma one time and she was saying how it used to be a big deal to go on the plane. Yeah. So like when my mom and my aunt were growing up, they would have to like be all dre- like dressed up and whatnot. Yeah. Getting on a plane. And now. It's like it's glorified. I, I, I go on a plane with like red pants and my, one of my jean vests, like with patches on it. And I. I've listen, been known to board a plane point. basically in pajamas. That's before. acceptable as well. So it's you watch, of, you listen to a podcast, watch a movie, you go to sleep, and you get and you get your destination. Yeah, I think that we all forget how cool it is that we're sitting in a seat three thirty thousand feet in the air. Sometimes I'm afraid of heights, uh, so, so you just choose to not remember that. I do look out the window because just because I kind of am able to switch off. Like, oh look, it, everything looks like a model. That's, That's just how I how I look at it, but. Like, when it comes to landing... Ooh. Not a fan. No. Fair enough. Flying doesn't really freak me out. Which is good, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway. You'd be um, a good person to fly with, I'd, I'd say. Uh, I, fly you don't a, seem I, like, I fly a lot. You don't seem like the kind of person that when... Uh, if yeah. you're with a nervous flyer, when turbulence comes, you don't start singing Buddy Holly songs? No, not really. So. You're good. I wouldn't start singing Peggy Sue. Or that'll be the day. Yeah. That'll be the day when I die. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so the following, so 1939, um, young Alan Shepard began cycling to Manchester Airfield where he would do odd jobs in exchange for the occasional ride in an airplane or an informal flying lesson. So he was really determined to get up in the sky. Uh, Shepard graduated from Pinkerton in 1940. And because World War II was raging in Europe, his father wanted him to join the army. But he instead chose the Navy, we're in the Navy, uh, <laughs> and easily passed the entrance exam into the U.S. Naval Academy at, at Annapolis, but at 16 was too young that year. Can I just point something out? Yep. It's like every single person who's been to like space or the moon was. has had like a history of like when they were a child, they dreamed of flying. Yeah. What, you've never had someone go to space that's been like... I thought it was I. Well, yeah. I mean, it'd you know? be hard to do that, but never, like, it, 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 it's like you've never had, like, an astronaut or a cosmonaut or anything where it's where their um, initial dream was to be a 
ship captain, a ship or, some captain. Shit. or a yeah. no, or no like something completely unrelated like, like a doctor lawyer. like a doctor yeah or i don't know a podcaster podcaster <laughs> <laughs> which you know what I mean? definitely existed in the 40s but yeah um, <laughs> yeah i know it's kind of funny well and it's like i will talk just i'll riff on kennedy like in a bit but um it's just like it is kind of funny how that is the case i mean like it's it's not really funny i guess but it's like it's funny because it's, like, seemingly pretty obvious. Like, yeah. you should want to have to, you know, you should want to like flying if you're going to go to space. Like, yeah. Unless you're Gila Liberté, but... Yeah, Gila, For those of you who don't know, Gila Liberté is the... One of the founders and is the CEO, I think, still, of Cirque du Soleil. And he was one of the first space tourists as well. Of course he was. I mean, this guy's, like, swimming in money. Richer than God. <laughs> Yeah. Do continue, I apologize. That's okay. So, yeah. Shepard chose the Navy, because reasons, and easily passed the entrance exam into the Naval Academy at Annapolis, but he was 16, so he was too young. So the Navy sent him to the Admiral Farragut Academy, a prep school for the Naval Academy, basically, from which he graduated from the class of, with the class of 1941. Tests administered at the Academy indicated an IQ of... 145, but his grades were pretty mediocre. So, smart, but clearly didn't try that hard. Uh, Shepard enjoyed aquatic sports in Annapolis and was a keen and competitive sailor, winning several races, including a regatta held by the Annapolis Yacht Club. 145 IQ? Yeah. That was my IQ in high school. Yeah. I don't know how accurate IQ things are. It just seems kind of... Yeah, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, but that was my IQ, so I classified as gifted. There you go. (laughs) You and Alan Shepard. Yay. Same boat. Two. Anyway. Uh, owing to the... Uh, yeah, anyway. Owing to the war, the usual four-year course in Annapolis was cut short by a year because you can't have people in school and we need them fighting. And he graduated and was commissioned as an ensign on June 6, 1944, ranked 463rd in his class of 915, so strongly in the middle of the pack. Yeah. Average? Average. Mm. In 1944, he received a Bachelor of Science degree at the U.S. Naval Academy. After a month of classroom instruction in aviation, Shepard was posted to a destroyer, the USS Cogswell, in 19- August 1944, because it was standard U.S. Navy policy that aviation candidates should first have some service at sea, which is probably fair enough. I mean, yeah, you can't just get to do what you want immediately. At the time, the destroyer was deployed on active service to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Shepard joined it when it returned to the naval base at uh, Ulithi Islands, or at Ulithi and the Caroline Islands, sorry, which is in the Pacific Ocean somewhere. Um, two days later, the Cogswell res- rescued 172 sailors from the cruiser, the USS Reno, which had been torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. The Cogswell, Cogswell was buffeted by a typhoon in December 1944, a storm in which three other destroyers went down and battled kamikazes in the invasion of the Lingyanan Gulf, or Lingyan Gulf, I can't say that, I suck at this, in January 1945. Yeah, dude, welcome to our life. <laughs> Ugh, Jesus, I'm bad at this today. The Cogswell returned to the U.S. for an overhaul in February 1945, and Shepard was given three weeks' leave when he got married during this time. Good for him. He rejoined the ship at the Long Beach Navy Yard on April 5th, 1945, and on this second cruise, he was appointed a gunnery officer responsible for the 20mm and 40mm anti-aircraft guns on the ship's bow. They engaged kamikazes at the Battle of Okinawa, where the ship served in the dangerous role of a radar picket. So this means the ship was to warn the fleet of incoming kamikazes, but basically they only knew there was kamikazes because they got attacked first. So they're... Not a fun job. No, not really. 
Um, they were often the first ship sighted, and therefore the most likely to be attacked. So, not great. Uh, in November 1945, Shepard arrived at Naval Air Station Corpus Christi in Texas, where he commenced his basic flight training on January 7th, 1946. He was an average student, because that's a trend for him. And for a time, he actually faced being dropped out of flight training and reassigned to the surface Navy. But um, he made up for that because he took private lessons at a local flying school, which the Navy did not like. But he earned a civil, a civil pilot's license, so yay. Uh, his flying skills gradually improved, though, and by early 1947, his instructors rated him above average, so he was allowed to keep flying. He was sent to Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida for advanced training, and his flight test was six. Per his flight test was to be six perfect landings on the U.S. carrier the, er, on the carrier the USS Saipan. The following day, he received his Naval Aviator wings, which his father pinned on his chest. So that's sweet. Um, Shepard was assigned to Fighter Squadron 42, flying the Vought F4U Corsair. The squadron was normally, or nominally based on the, yeah, sorry, normally, I apparently have a typo in my notes. The squadron was normally based on the aircraft, the USS Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but the ship was being overhauled at the time that he arrived, and in the meantime, the squadron was based at the Naval Air Station at Norfolk in Virginia, which is also pretty close to where NASA was <laughs> based. Uh. He departed on his first cruise on the F on the FDR in 1948 in the, Carib in the Caribbean. He got to go to really warm places. Yeah. Lucky bastard. I was going to say, unlike Korolev, who got to go to Kolyma. <laughs> Oof. Or live in, unlike Gagarin, who lived in a mud hut during this time, pretty much. Um, most of the aviators, like, Sh like Shepard, were on their first assignment. Those who were not on their first assignment were given the opportunity to qualify for night landings on the carrier which was already a dangerous maneuver, but especially in this particular plane, the Corsair, because it had to bank sharply on approach, and I guess that plane wasn't good at that. <laughs> but Shepard managed to talk his squadron commander into allowing him to qualify as well, so he is nothing if not brave, I guess. Uh, in 1950, he was selected to attend the United States Naval Test Pilot School at P Patuxent River Naval Station in Maryland. And as a test pilot, he conducted high-altitude tests to obtain information about the light air masses about, yeah, the light air and masses at different altitudes over North America. But he also tested for carrier suitability, certification of the McDonnell F2H Banshee, experiments with the Navy's new in-flight refueling system, and tests of the angled flight deck. So he did some dangerous shit as a test pilot, because that's what test pilots do. Shepard narrowly avoided being court-martialed by the station commander, Rear Admiral Alfred M. Pride, after looping the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and making low passes over the beach at Ocean City, Maryland, and the base in his plane, because he's a bit of a cowboy. And uh, <laughs> this Rear Admiral wasn't fond of that. But Shepard avoided being court-martialed because his superiors, John Highland and Robert Elder, interceded on his behalf. They're like, please don't lock up the gifted pilot. <laughs> we need him. So his next assignment was to VF-193, a night fighter squadron in the flying the Banshee that was based at uh, Naval Air Station Moffett, California. Naval aviators with experience in jet aircraft were really new at this time because jets had only really started coming of age, so Shepard's experience was incredibly valuable. And Commander James D. Ramage specifically requested Shepard's assignment on the advice of Elder, who had saved Shepard's ass from being court-martialed. <laughs> and so Ramage made Shepard his own wingman, actually, which saved his life in 1954 because an oxygen system failed in... Ramage's plane, and Shepard managed to talk him through a landing, so wow. good decision. As a squadron's operations officer, Shepard's most important task was imparting his knowledge of flying jets to his 
fellow aviators and keeping them alive, basically, as a result. Important, important jobs. Um, he served two tours on the aircraft carrier USS Orissa County in the Western Pacific. It set out on a combat mission tour, or sorry, on a combat tour off Korea in 1953. But the Korean Armistice Agreement ended the fighting in July of 1953, so Shepard didn't see combat. Funny that our second three-hour episode still contains Korea. Um, yeah, really? <laughs> never escape in Korea. Um, Shepard was... Sent- it comes up again, actually. So. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah. Uh, Shepard was sent back to Patuxent because he wanted to fly rather than be a commander, and he flight-tested the McDonald or the McDonald F-3H Demon, Vought F-8 Cruiser, Douglas FD-4, F-4D, sorry, Skyray, and the Grumman F-11 Tiger. He was an instructor at the test pilot school and then entered the Naval War College at Newport, Rhode Island. He graduated in 1957 and became an aircraft readiness officer on the staff of the Commander-in-Chief Atlantic Fleet. By this time, he had logged more than 3,600 hours of flying time, including 1,700 hours in jets. So compare that to the 200 or so hours of flight time that uh, Gagarin had when he went to space. When Sputnik launched in 1957, American confidence in its technological superiority had been shattered. And that created a wave of anxiety, which was known as the Sputnik crisis. So Sputnik caused a legitimate crisis. Among his responses, Eisenhower launched the space race. So NASA got created, as Jonah had talked about, in 1958. And one of the first initiatives was publicly announced on December 17, 1958. This was Project Mercury, which aimed to launch a man into Earth orbit, return him safely to Earth, and evaluate his capabilities in space. NASA received permission from Eisenhower to recruit its first astronauts from the ranks of military test pilots. Service records of 508 graduates of test pilots were obtained from the United States Department of Defense, and from these, 110 were found that matched the minimum minimum standards. And these standards are pretty similar to the Soviet standards. Candidates had to be younger than 40, possess a bachelor's degree or equivalent, which wasn't a requirement for the Soviet Union, but most Soviet people were generally pretty educated at this point anyway. And they had to be 5'11", so 1.8 meters, or shorter. And while they were not all strictly enforced, the height requirement was firm, owing to the size of Project Mercury's spacecraft. So, you had to be 5'11", or shorter. The 110 were then split into three groups, with the most promising in the first group. The first group contained 35 people, which included Alan Shepard, and assembled, assembled at the Pentagon in February 1959, the Navy and Marine Corps officers were welcomed by Chief of Naval, Oper- Naval Operations, Admiral Arlie Burke, while the United States Air Force com- officers were addressed by the Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force, General Thomas D. White. That's a title. Yeah, really. Not quite like Dwight's t- title, but still a title. Uh, what, Supreme Allied Commander? Yeah, that's a, that's a title. Uh, both pledged their support to the space program and promised the careers of volunteers would not be adversely affected. Because NASA was a civilian organization, a lot of the, and these guys were all military, they were really worried that if they took a leave of absence to do this, that their military careers would suffer. So they were promised it wouldn't happen. Uh, NASA officials then briefed them on Project Mercury. They conceded it would be a hazardous undertaking, but emphasized that it was a great national important thing to do, basically. Uh, Shepard discussed the day's events later with fellow naval aviators, including Jim Lovell. Pete Conrad, and Wally Shearer, all of whom would eventually become astronauts. They were all concerned about their careers, but decided to volunteer, because glory. And I think they're all probably adrenaline junkies, like, honestly. You're going to have to be. If you're a test pilot, it's like, what else can you do beyond being a test pilot? Like, going to space is pretty much the next natural jump, (laughs) honestly. 
The briefing process was repeated with a group of a second group of 34 a week later. Of the 69 total, six were found to be over the height limit, 15 were eliminated or for other reasons, and 16 were declined. This left NASA with 32 candidates and decided not to bother with the remaining 41 because it was deemed to be more than enough. Basically, it would just be incredibly inefficient to have more. Um, but since the degree of interest indicated that a far fewer number would drop out during training than anticipated, they decided to cut the number down to seven because, or decided to cut it down to six because they were hoping people would drop out and make that decision easy for them. But that didn't happen because everyone wants to go to space. This was followed by a grueling series of physical and psychological tests at the Lovelace Clinic and the Wright Aerospace Medical Laboratory. Only one candidate, Jim Lovell, was eliminated on a medical on a medical basis, but that was later found to be an error, so Lovell still got to fly. Uh, Shepard was informed of his selection on April 1st, 1959. The identities of the seven were announced at a press conference at Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. on April 9th, 1959. They were Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, Wally Shearer, Alan Shepard, and Deke Slayton. If you guys have, if any, any of you guys have ever seen the movie The Right Stuff, this is completely what it's about. Yeah, they also sort of have cameos and hidden figures, which is also a movie about this kind of, <laughs> not specifically about Shepard, but no, about the people who got him there. Anyway, the magnitude of the challenge ahead of them was made clear a few weeks later on the night of May eighteenth, nineteen fifty nine, when the seven astronauts gathered at Cape Canaveral to watch their first rocket launch of an SM. 65D Atlas, which was similar to the one that was to carry them into orbit. A few minutes after liftoff, though, it's, it exploded spectacularly, lighting up the night sky. These astronauts were stunned because they're supposed to ride on this thing soon, and it just blew up. So Shepard turned to John Glenn and said, quote, well, I'm glad they got that out of the way. Because <laughs> I guess what the hell else do you say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, what else do you say to that? Like, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> Other than, like, fuck no, I'm not getting on it? I don't know. Like, um, Someone had to be the first one to speak. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, faced with intense competition from other astronauts, particularly John Glenn, Shepard decided that he would quit smoking and also adopted Glenn's habit of taking a morning jog, so he decided that maybe being healthy was probably good for this. Um, but he didn't go so far as to give up the cocktails or the philandering that he was known to do. During his time in the Navy, even though he was married, he was known to like to chase women. I don't think he ever really went through with anything, but he was a little bit like, a little bit like BJ Honeycutt or you know Trapper John and Nash. <laughs> liked to chase tails, even if they didn't actually go, you know, that far. So he refused to give up the cocktails. That's the important thing in this. Smoking, fine. Cocktails, no. I guess astronauts deserve a martini here and there. I don't yeah. know. On January nineteenth, nineteen sixty-one, Roberta R. Gilruth, the director of NASA's Space Task Group, or Robert R. Gilruth. I don't know why I said Roberta. Ugh director of NASA's Space Task Group, informed the Seven that Shepard had been chosen for the first American crewed mission into space. Shepard later recalled that his, his wife Louise's response when he told her that she had her arms around the man who'd be the first man in space. Louise responded, quote, who let a Russian in here? Because <laughs> Louise is savage, <laughs> apparently. And she quietly disappeared afterward. No. no. Not really. Not really, though. Uh, during training, he flew 120 simulated flights. Although his flight was originally scheduled for April 26, 1960, it was postponed several times by unplanned preparatory work, initially to December 5, 1960, then mid-January 1961, then March 6, 1961, then April 25, 1961, then May 2, 1961, and finally May 5, 1961. 
On April 12, 1961, though, Gagarin beat him to space, and Louise's prediction of a Russian in here came true. <laughs> Gagarin shattered Americans' pride, basically. So, yeah. The USSR definitely took, took some wind out of some sails. Yeah. When Shepard found out that Gagarin was the first in space, he apparently slammed his fist so hard on a table that a NASA public relations officer feared he actually broke his hand. Because Shepard was pissed. Um, on May 5th, 1961, Shepard piloted the Mercury Redstone 3 mission and became the second person, the first American, in space. He named his spacecraft, the Mercury Spacecraft 7, Freedom 7, because it rolls off the tongue a lot better. When reporters asked Shepard what he thought about as he sat atop the Redstone rocket waiting for liftoff, Shepard responded with, quote, the fact that every part of this ship was built by the lowest bidder. Because <laughs> that's comforting. <laughs> You're sitting on hundreds of thousands of pounds of jet fuel. <laughs> Good stuff. Unlike Gagarin's 108-minute orbital flight in a Vostok craft three times the size of Freedom 7, Shepard stayed on a suborbital trajectory for the 15-minute flight, which reached an altitude of 101.2 nautical miles, which is about 187.4 kilometers, and then fell to a splashdown 263.1 nautical miles, about 487 kilometers, down the Atlantic Missile Range. Unlike Gagarin, who was more or less just along for the ride, Shepard actually did have some control of Freedom 7, spacecraft attitude in particular. His launch was televised and seen by millions. One thing not seen by the viewing public, though, was Shepard's pre-launch quote-unquote emergency. Because the entire journey was only expected to take 15 minutes, Shepard's suit did not have any provision for elimination of bodily waste. After being strapped into the capsule seat, launch delays kept him in that suit for eight hours. Oh, God. Shepard's endurance gave out before launch, and he was forced to empty his bladder into his suit, which shorted out the medical sensors attached to it to track the astronaut's condition in flight. After Shepard's flight, NASA called the suit's manufacturer, B.F. Goodrich, and by the time of John Glenn's orbital flight, a liquid waste collection feature had been added to the suit. So, that's a funny... You know, in hindsight, guys... Not, not, it's kind of a not-so-funny oversight, but it's funny now. It's just... Oh, it's hilarious. At the time, probably not so funny. And I'm sure that John Shepard was going to murder some people when he got, off, got out of that suit. <laughs> um, anyway. Ugh. After a dramatic recovery from the Atlantic Ocean, Shepard observed that, quote, he didn't really feel the flight was a success until the recovery had been successfully completed. It's not the fall that hurts. It's the sudden stop. Mm. Splashdown occurred with an impact comparable to landing a jet aircraft on an aircraft carrier. So, a sensation he was at least used to. A recovery helicopter arrived after a few minutes, and the capsule was lifted partly out of the water to allow Shepard to leave by the main hatch. He squeezed out of the door and was pulled into the helicopter, which flew both him and the spacecraft to the aircraft carrier USS Lake Champlain, which is an interesting name for an American ship, by the way. Anyway, the whole process took 11 minutes. So it was interesting because the Russians had a hard hard landing, I guess. They came back to, like, land. The Americans have always chosen to land in the sea. Is. Yeah, until recently. I think, oh, I mean, or... until the space until the space shuttle. Okay, yeah, yeah. Until they had like point. landing gears. Yeah. Um, they've pretty much always just chosen to land in the water, and I'm not really sure the reason for that exactly, other than maybe the USSR just has more physical empty space. Like Kazakhstan's pretty empty. I don't know. Anyway, either way, interesting. But Shepard was celebrated as a national hero and honored with ticker tape parades in Washington, New York, and Los Angeles, and received the NASA Distinguished Service. Medal from President Kennedy. He was also awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Shepard served as CAPCOM, so Control Commander, for Glenn's orbital flight, and which he also had been concerned for, and Carpenter's Mercury, Mercury Atlas 7 flight. He was the backup pilot for Cooper for the Mercury, Mercury Atlas 9 mission, nearly replacing Cooper after Cooper, 
was also a cowboy, and flew low over the NASA administration building at Cape Canaveral in an F-106, and probably also almost got his ass bounced from the program. Um, there's a trend with these astronauts. In we the got these guys from a frat house. Apparently. In the final stages of Project Mercury, Shepard was scheduled to pilot the Mercury Atlas 10, which was planned as a three-day mission. He named the spacecraft Freedom 7-2, but on June 12, 1963, the NASA Administrator James E. Webb announced that Mercury had accomplished all it had all of its goals and had no more missions to fly. Shepard went as far as making a personal appeal to President Kennedy to no avail. And that's probably because Kennedy had his sights set on the moon at this point. Yeah. And with the Apollo program and trying to get an American on the moon, which is why President Kennedy went to... Was he at Rice University when he made that speech? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. So I don't want to say he was at Texas because I'm pretty sure he was at Rice and made the famous speech of, you know, we play... Why does Rice play Texas? And why do we want to go to the moon? We choose to go to the moon. In this decade. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do this and the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And to spare you Jonah's Boston accent, we'll just play the real version. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win and the others too. Hi, you're, uh, sorry. For those of you who've been of Clone High, that clip that you just heard does not really disprove that, ac like, that accuracy of the accents. Not, no. In Clone High. <laughs> yeah. uh, Kennedy's accent, pretty atrocious. Ugh, Boston, come on. Um, so at this point, like, we're pretty heavy into the space race, and I'm just going to riff here because I don't actually have notes. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good opportunity for us to break and chat. Yeah. I think at this, place, at this point, we're pretty firmly in the middle of the space race. Both countries have sent satellites, dogs, humans, etc. into space. <laughs> monkeys. Monkeys. Many rockets. We to talk about the monkeys. Plenty of rockets have exploded at this point. Um, According to the Simpsons, all the monkeys came back extremely intelligent. Hmm. So there's intelligent life out there. <laughs> well, they, yeah. Or space evolution? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> ah, good times. So I think Kennedy kind of like officially launched the race to the moon with that speech at Rice. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, again, Korolev wanted to go to the moon. And I think the Soviets kind of wanted to go to the moon, but I think that they weren't that motivated until Kennedy really said something. Like, we're heavy into the space race, but at this point, the technology for rockets, I think, was also at the same time being heavily placed on the development of, like, ICBMs and nuclear programs. So we're also figuring out ways to kill each other while yeah. send people to space. Well, what, so, I, what I've yeah. gathered about the Soviet, un, um, not, like, what I know about the Soviets' like thoughts about the moon is that they didn't actually think it would be possible. So they didn't even... the It was... The people within the rocket program wanted to do it. So, yeah. like, Sergei Korolev wanted to, yeah. to aim for it, but the those in the bureaucracy, like, because, yeah, you know, everything everything bureaucratic is what kind of 
yeah. slowed the U- Soviet Union down quite a bit. Well, and just, yeah, I mean, also financially to some extent. Yeah, and they, would just, they just weren't. That was a bigger problem during the 80s. But yeah, but the, like, those the bureaucracy bureauc- bureaucrats were not I'm interested sure. in going, like, in no. spending that much money. Well. And they were just kind of basically hoping that. Without the, the America- guarantee that they would get some glory from it to some yeah, extent. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they're expecting the U.S. to humiliate themselves trying to get to the moon. Yeah. And, I mean, there was some other disasters along the way for the Soviets that kind of stopped them from really Trying. going all in. Yeah. Which, yeah. So. That, and I think they're also kind of starting to fund guerrilla activity, or it's, I might be wrong. Um, in the 60s, yeah. Kind of. In, like, Vietnam, a little. Ho Chi Minh. Uh, yeah, I'm also certain... Now that I think about it, I'm also certain the Cuban Missile Crisis probably. Uh, also that, yeah. But for both sides. Well, that was a bit of a distraction during this whole thing, yeah. Was Khrushchev sending some nukes to Cuba? Um, yeah. Yeah. Which actually happened in the same month as Gagarin going to space. In the same huh. year. Like, it happened the same month and same year. That is true. 62? 1. 61, okay. Um, I'm going to fact check myself. Real quick, but 99%. Oh, I lied. Cuban Missile Crisis is a year later. So it is in 62. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. I thought this happened at the same time. I'm wrong. Like a lot of the time. But either way, I mean, pretty tense situation. Because, like, if you think of, like, the years as they go. So, like, Sputnik happens. The Americans kind of panic because it's like. I mean, to be fair, people also kind of panicked because they didn't know what it meant. They didn't know that Sputnik was literally just a beeping piece of metal. They thought it could spy. Yeah, they thought that it had some actual capability. And also just, like, what does it mean to have something in space? Like, That's, what does that mean for everyone? What does it mean to have a communist-made thing in space? Well, also that, because Red Scares. So the Sputnik crisis was part of the Red Scare, which is fun. I like that Sputnik actually caused a crisis. Well, what's funny <laughs> to me... just makes me happy. I've seen video. I'll post some of this on the Facebook page. There's, like, ta- like uh, newsreel footage of the news men out in the streets just asking random people and they're all like saying oh i'm concerned about what the communists have like like if the soviets have this in like especially an enemy like someone says something like that and then in like now like watching that now it's hilarious because we know that all it did was beep yeah pretty <laughs> it much. literally did nothing except beep pretty much i mean <laughs> the thing about the whole like cold war is like Everyone, it just sort of goes to show, like, how disastrous propaganda kind of can be because both sides, like, build up all this fear. And then it's, like, turns out that neither side was really, like, I don't know. It just, it turns out that it was, like, it was a threat. It was definitely, like, a threat because nuclear weapons are scary. But, um, it you know, turns out that a lot of these fears are probably, like, completely unwarranted in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, they were only, it was almost like they were scared of each other, but didn't really have a reason to be scared of each other exactly. (laughs) Like, it's kind of like someone's in the middle being like, hey, that guy said that something bad about you, like, go after them. And then goes to the other person and says the same thing. It almost feels like that. Yeah. And then, of course, then it's just like, oh, and and then they they just said, they're they're (laughs) those kids of the schoolyard that are like, yeah. Hey, so and so said, and it's like, so and so says, and then they, and then they gather their friends and like, now, like, we just wipe. Pretty much. Wait at the flagpole yeah. after school. Like, basically. And then it just after that is like, well, fuck, we have to one-up each other every time now. I mean, I can imagine, like, I understand how kind of, like, this, this sequence of years would be freaky. 60, 61, Gagarin goes to, or, like, well, in the, yeah, 59-ish or 8-ish, Sputnik goes 
then 61, Gagarin goes, and then Tereshkova goes, and then the Soviets got just one person into space before Shepard, and then, yeah, and yeah. then, then Tereshkova was next. I think she went before John Glenn. I'm not sure. I can't remember offhand. I, it should, John Glenn does deserve a mention, and uh, I am sad to say neither of us actually looked into him. He was the first human to orbit yeah. the Earth. No, first American to orbit the Earth. Oh, okay. Because Gagarin orbited the Earth first. Right. Okay. So Gagarin orbited the Earth, Shepard did not, and then John Glenn orbited the Earth. Right, okay. But he actually did more when he was in space. Like, he collected information and stuff. I kind of know more about John Glenn just partly in relation to the Hidden Figures story, like with Katherine Johnson, because she was a big reason for the calculations on his flight. So she helped calculate the trajectory for the space flight of Alan Shepard. For those of you who haven't seen... Hidden Figures, or don't know who Katherine Johnson is, I'm going to educate you real fast, because she's important. And also ties into Jonah's point earlier about segregation at NASA, because Johnson was a black woman who worked as a computer in segregated NASA, and was wicked smart, and uh, <laughs> I had to pull that out. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Anyway, so she was the one who was responsible for calculating the trajectory of Alan, Je- Alan Shepard's flight, and then she calculated the launch window, for his 1961 Mercury mission, which ended up not going. She plotted backup navigation charts for astronauts in case of electronic failures. When NASA used electronic computers for the first time to calculate John Glenn's orbit around the Earth, officials called on Johnson to verify the computer's numbers. And this is because John Glenn refused to fly unless Johnson Johnson verified the calculations. Because he trusted her so much that he's like, I don't trust this computer bullshit. Like, make sure it's right. I trust you, not this. So this author actually said something kind of interesting. Quote, So the astronaut who became a hero looked to this black woman in this still segregated South at the time as one of the key parts of making sure his mission would be a success. End quote. Which is like, really when you situate the context of all of this in the 1960s in the civil rights movement, like, that's big. That's, yeah. that's really cool. She has two things, like... She's um, black and a woman. She's black and a woman. So two things that are completely not her fault. That she's are used very against, much punished yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, so she was part of that. She did work with digital computers, but her ability and reputation for accuracy is what actually helped establish confidence in the computers, was that she was able to verify the calculations of the computers, and because she had such a good reputation of getting it right, everyone's like, okay, now we can trust computers, because Katherine Johnson says it's cool. Well, there you go. So... Uh, yeah, that's sort of what I more what I know about John Glenn because I just know about him more in relation to her. But um, I do think it's pretty cool, and I have a lot of respect for John Glenn that he like loved her and respected her in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, please get me back alive. I trust you. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, at this point, I think we're we're pretty firmly in the space race, and everyone's just trying to get to the moon, especially once Kennedy decides. Like, and I th- I don't I. I'm a little shaky on this, but I feel like the motivation to get to the moon for Kennedy is in part because, like, we got beat when it came to getting into space first, getting a man into space, and getting a man to orbit the Earth. Like, they got beat. And I think that there was some motivation of, like... And then I imagine some of the prodding of, like, the Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. and that stuff, too. Well, he... And also just having, like, convincing people around him, too, like Von Braun and NASA and, you know seeing that success. But I do think there's an element of like, we got beat and this is the next frontier. Oh yeah. Well, he wanted, I read an article, (coughs) he initially wanted to go to Mars. 
Uh, yeah, that Catherine, was his thing. Katherine Johnson actually worked on calculations to go to Mars when she worked for NASA. Well, what's funny is Kennedy had to be talked down, like saying maybe Mars is a bit ambitious. Ambitious <laughs> now, and he, they they convinced him about the moon instead, and he was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yes. I mean, it's ambitious. It's like ambitious. even now, it's still ambitious. Yeah. I've said on like on record, not on the <laughs> show, but I have said if I had a choice to go to Mars, I would not do it. Oh God, no. I if I had a chance to go to the moon, I would take that. Yeah. Because I could get home. We've been there, <laughs> and we know how to get back. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, the we have to go back to the moon if we're going to go back to Mars. And, like I mentioned in a couple episodes ago, we will be going back to the moon, but we're going to talk about that a bit later. Yeah. So, yeah, um, in terms of the race to the moon, that's kind of where we're at. I mean, there's not a lot to say on it just because it's like we're, we're covering both sides, and we'll play some of Kennedy's speech, but, I mean, Kennedy was integral in this, and it is sad that he was not alive to watch the moon landing and that fucking Nixon or no LBG it was Nixon yeah fucking Nixon fucking tricky dicky got to witness that shit ugh yeah ugh anyway moving on Nixon's not important we're not making this about him so yeah like we mentioned or I mentioned I suppose there was some disaster in the Soviet program also the American program I'll start with the American disaster because it actually happened first, kind of. And arguably it was a bit more catastrophic in a way. Mm, yeah. In terms of death. Yeah, yeah. So. Like number of people who died, definitely. They happened, I mean, they happened around the same time, actually. So the space, the, the race to the moon led to some, some people dying. The first instance on the American side was uh, Apollo 1. So Apollo 1, which was initially designated AS-204, which is not a sexy name. Apollo 1, uh, was, first, was the first crewed mission to, uh, to, of the United States Apollo program, the program that was meant to land the first man on the moon. But Apollo 1 never flew. It was planned as the first low-Earth orbital test of the Apollo Command and Service module with a crew to launch on February 21st, 1967. It was to be launched on a Saturn 1B rocket, and I've seen a Saturn rocket, actually, in uh, the aerospace museum, the Smithsonian Aerospace Museum. Nice. They're fucking huge. They're crazy. They're ridiculous. It's big. insane. So he's supposed to be launched on one of these big fucking rockets. And uh, they were uh, set to test launch operations, ground tracking and control facilities, and the performance of the Apollo Saturn launch assembly would have lasted up to two weeks, depending on how the spacecraft performed. In January 1966, the crew for Apollo 1 was chosen, Virgil Gus Grissom, Edward H. White II, and Robert B. Chaffee. Chaffee? Chaffee? Anyway. Grissom declared his intent to keep his craft in orbit for a full 14 days. Uh, a newspaper article published... Grissom was a character. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyways, he, was t- he declared his intent to keep the craft in orbit for 14 days. A newspaper article published on August 4th, 1966, referred to the flight as Apollo 1. Later, it arrived at Kennedy Space Center on August 26th, labeled Apollo 1 by NAA on its packaging. Grissom's new crew received approval in June 1966 to design a mission patch with the name Apollo 1. So, it's kind of random how it got the name, to be honest, but it's a sexier name than AS-204. Yeah. The launch simulation on January 27th, 1967. On pad 34 was a, quote, plugs-out test to determine whether the spacecraft would operate nominally, or, sorry, normally, simulated internal power while detached from all cables and umbilicals. Passing this test was essential to making the February 21 launch date. The test was considered non-hazardous because neither the launch vehicle nor the spacecraft was loaded with fuel or, cry- or cryogenics and all pyrotechnic systems were disabled. 
At 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on January 27th, Grissom and Chaffee then White entered the command module, fully pressure seated, then were strapped into their seats and hooked up into the spacecraft's oxygen and communication systems. Grissom immediately noticed the strange smell in the air circulating through his suit, which he compared to sour, butter, sour buttermilk. The simulated countdown was put on hold at 1.20 p.m. No cause of the odor could be found, and the countdown was resumed at 2.42 p.m. The accident investigation later found the odor was not actually related to any of this, but regardless, first sign of something not being right. After the countdown resumed, the hatch installations were started, and there were three layers of hatches, and after those hatches were sealed, the air was in the cabin was replaced with pure oxygen at 16.7 PSI, which is 2 PSI higher than atmospheric pressure. So, a shitload of pure oxygen, which is not great. The crew members were going through their checklist when a momentary increase in AC bus 2 voltage occurred. And this whole time, they'd been having some communication errors with the comm, like just with the comm system, and Grissom was kind of annoyed being like, you know, how are we supposed to communicate in space if we can't even communicate between buildings? Right. So communication was kind of weird and, like, sketchy. So nine seconds later, one of the astronauts and some listeners in lab analysis, say Grissom, explained, hey, fire. And this was followed by two seconds of scuffling sounds through Grissom's open mic, followed immediately by someone else saying, we've got a fire in the cockpit. After 6.8 seconds of silence, a second badly garbled transmission occurred, interpreted by listeners as, they're, f- they're fighting a bad fire. Let's get out of here. Open her up. This transmission lasted five seconds and ended with a cry of pain. The intensity of the fire fed by pure oxygen, caused the pressure to rise to 29 PSI, which ruptured the command module's inner wall. Flames and gases rushed outside the command module through open access panels to two levels of the pad service structure. Intense heat, dense smoke, and ineffective gas masks designed for toxic fumes, rather than heavy smoke, hampered the ground crew's attempts to rescue the men. It took five minutes for the pad workers to open all three layers of the hatch, and they could not drop the inner hatch to the cabin floor as intended, so they pushed it out of the way to one side. When they got inside, all, the instru- all of the astronauts were dead. The autopsy report confirmed that the primary cause of death for all three astronauts was cardiac arrest caused by high concentrations of carbon monoxide. All of them had suffered really nasty, like, third-degree burns, but all of them were not believed to be major factors in their deaths and actually were concluded to have happened entirely post-mortem, which I guess is nice. Mm, yeah. Burning alive is not what you want. So the review board identified several major factors which combined to cause the fire and the astronauts' deaths. The first, an ignition source most probably related to vulnerable wiring carrying spacecraft power and vulnerable plumbing carrying a combustible and corrosive coolant. A pure oxygen atmosphere at a higher temperature, or at higher than atmospheric pressure was also not safe. A cabin sealed with a hatch cover that could not be quickly removed at high pressure. So the three, three hatches were a big problem in getting them rescued. An, inten- or an extensive distribution of combustible materials in the cabin, inadequate emergency preparedness, so rescue or medical assistance, and crew escape. So very much all could have been prevented in that sense. Yeah. So that was the American one, which the monument is still there. The scorch marks on the pad is I should also... There. I also mentioned that at the funeral of these men who perished in Apollo 1... All three astronauts and much of the other astronauts who ended up flying with the Apollo program were present at the funeral. Yeah. And I believe Armstrong was one of the pallbearers. I think he was too. So you can imagine what was going through it's his pretty, head. Pretty catastrophic. It's, it's pretty catastrophic to the program being the first one. I mean, it was catastrophic just for like a number of reasons. It had a lot of success getting people in and out of space and like 
I think the thing that made this even more like heartbreaking and catastrophic is that it was deemed a non-hazardous test. Yeah, really. Like technically, all the stuff they deemed hazardous wasn't on. Literally the everything that, as little that as possible that could have gone wrong went on that wrong. test went wrong, and unfortunately, like when you're pumping pure oxygen, it's gonna explode. <laughs> yeah, it's and not also. Be good. Like, because of the pressure, they couldn't open the doors. No. The well, and it caused the, the inner wall to collapse. Exactly. And that was the problem. Yeah. But similar to the Americans, the Russians also had their own catastrophe, although much less catastrophic in terms of people dying. Uh, someone still died, but not as many. And so the Russian program to match Apollo was Soyuz. Um, Soyuz 1 was the first manned flight of this first generation of Soyuz 7K okay spacecraft and Soyuz rocket designed as part of the Soviet lunar program. It was the first Soviet manned spaceflight for over two years following the death of Korolev. So in this process, while von Braun is still living, Korolev dies. On December 3rd, 1960, Korolev suffered his first heart attack. Um, I'm going to go through his death a little bit just because his death is actually incredibly important to the story yeah. because it ha had a really serious impact on the Soviet space program at this point and rocket program and just in general. So he suffered his first heart attack in December of 1960, and while he was recovering, it was discovered that he had a kidney condition, which had been brought on, brought on by his detention in the camps. So his gulag time caught up with him. He was warned by the doctors that if he continued to work as intensely as he had been, he would not live for very long. But Korolev was convinced that though Khrushchev was only interested in the propaganda value of the space race, and it would be canceled entirely if the Soviets started losing their leadership to the U.S. So... That's kind of where the Soviets were at with this. They didn't really care that much, actually, about getting to the moon. They just wanted the propaganda victory. So if Soviet scientists couldn't keep up to get that propaganda victory, then... They were just going to move on. Fuck it, we're done. And Korolev was really scared of that. So he pushed himself even harder. By 1962, his health problems were beginning to accumulate, and he was suffering numerous ailments. He had a bout of intestinal bleeding, and in 1964, he was diagnosed with cardiac arrhythmia. In February, he spent 10 days in the hospital after a heart problem, and then shortly after that, suffered from inflammation of the gallbladder. Not a very healthy man. No. His workload was taking a really heavy toll, and he was also beginning to lose his hearing, possibly from, well, not possibly, probably, from repeated exposure to loud rocket engines. That'll do it. The actual circumstances of his death remain kind of uncertain. In December 65, he was diagnosed with a bleeding polyp in his large intestine. And before entering the hospital in January of 1966 for routine surgery, he died nine days later. The government stated that he had turned out to what had turned out to be a large cancerous tumor in his abdomen, but Glushko later reported that he had actually died to a, due to a poorly performed operation for hemorrhoids. Okay. Yeah. Korolev's family confirmed the cancer surgery. His weak heart contributed to his death during surgery. Because anesthetic is really hard on your heart. So it was complications from the anesthetic that eventually killed him? Um, or? it just contributed. Okay. It's fair. not actually what killed him, but again, there's actually no, there's no definitive thing saying of what he died from right. exactly. Because under, it was, no one wanted to talk about it because it's, that's, it's, propaganda it really, reasons. well, that, and it also really, fucked it, their program. It really fucked up the r rocket program for the Soviets really for a lot, like a, quite a while. Really fucked it. Yeah. So, um, under a policy written by Stalin and continued by his successors, the identity of Korolev had never been revealed until after his death. So the purported reason being to protect him from foreign agents from the U.S. Because paranoia. Which, I mean, is actually kind of fair, truthfully. 
As a result, the Soviet people were not aware of his accomplishments until after he died. So they Jesus. saw all of this stuff of, like, Gagarin and Sputnik and all this shit and didn't know who caused it or did it. Until he died. Until he died. So his obituary, his obituary was published in Pravda newspaper on January 16th, 1966, showing a photo of Korolev with all of his medals. His ashes were interred with, with the state honors, or with state honors in the Kremlin Wall, which I've been to. It's pretty cool. But anyways, back to Soyuz. So prior to Soyuz 1's launch, engineers were said to have reported 203 design faults to party leaders, but their concerns were, quote, overruled by political pressures for a series of space feats to mark the anniversary of Lenin's birthday, end quote. So that kind of confirms Korolev's suspicions about the propaganda victories more than anything else. What is not clear is how much of this pressure resulted from wanting to continue to beat the U.S. and to have the Soviets be the first on the moon, or to take advantage of the recent setbacks in the U.S. space program with the Apollo 1 disaster. So the Soviets were a little opportunistic. I mean, they all were. It's not really an <laughs> accusation specifically against them, yeah. let's be honest. It's pretty cutthroat. Yeah. Yuri Gagarin was backup pilot to his friend Komarov on this flight, and Gagarin was aware of the design problems. He actually attempted to bump Komarov from the mission, knowing the Soviet leadership would not risk a national hero on the flight. So he was hoping he could get Komarov, like, out ousted, just so that he'd get put on it, and then it would get canceled. Because he knew that this was not going to end well. But at the same time, Komarov refused to pass on the mission, even though he also knew that it was probably doomed. Um, I think because he probably felt some kind of obligation to Gagarin's life. I don't know. Or he just wanted to be a martyr. I'm not really sure. But he explained that he, yeah, he, he explained he could not risk Gagarin's life. So it's kind of like two friends trying to save each other, and the party's like, we're going to launch this rocket no matter what. Right. So one if you get in. Soyuz 1 was launched on April 23rd, 1967 at 032 UTC, so like just after midnight, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, carrying Komarov, the first Soviet cosmonaut, to fly to space twice. Problems began shortly after launch when one of the solar panels failed to unfold, leading to a shortage of power for the spacecraft systems. Further problems with the orientation detectors complicated maneuvering the craft. By orbit 13, the automatic stabilization system was completely dead and the manual system was only partially effective. As a result, Komarov's report during the 13th orbit, the flight director decided to abort the mission. After 18 orbits, Soyuz 1 fired its retro rockets and re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. Despite technical difficulties to that point, Komarov might have landed safely. To slow the descent, the drug parachute was deployed, followed by the main parachute. But due to a defect, the main parachute did not unfold. The exact reason for the main parachute malfunction is disputed. But Komarov then activated the manually deployed reserve chute, but it became tangled with the drug chute, which did not release as intended. As a result, the Soyuz descent module fell to Earth in Orenburg Oblast almost entirely unimpeded at about 40 meters per second or 140 kilometers an hour. So, Komarov literally fell out of the sky to Earth. A rescue helicopter spotted the descent module lying on its side with the parachute spread across the ground. The retro rockets then started firing, which concerned the rescuers since they were supposed to activate a few moments before touchdown. So, they were supposed to have these rockets to make it a softer landing that didn't fire, so he basically just smashed into the ground. Right. And then the rockets fired, which isn't good. So by the time they touched down and approached, the descent module was in flames with black smoke, black smoke filling the air and streams of molten metal dripping from the exterior. The entire base of the capsule, capsule burned through. It was obvious at this point that Komarov had not survived, and there was no code signal for a cosmonaut's death, so the rescuers fire, fired a signal flare calling for medical assistance. Another group of rescuers in an aircraft then arrived and attempted to put out the blazing spacecraft with portable fire extinguishers, which was obviously insufficient, and instead they just began shoveling dirt onto it. 
The descent module then completely disintegrated, leaving only a pile of debris topped by the entry hatch. So, not a lot left of that. When the fire was finally out, the rescuers were able to dig through the rubble to find Komarov's remains strapped to the center couch. Doctors pronounced the cause of death to be from multiple blunt force injuries, probably from falling unimpeded back to Earth. Yeah. Are you squeamish? No, not really. Okay, because I actually have an image of his body. body. It's not that gruesome, but... Mostly because I'm sure it's burnt as shit. Yeah. yeah, you can't recognize that, really. No, I can describe it a little bit. It literally looks like a large... Char- charred... Something. Massive stuff. Yeah, like there's no discernible <coughs> features at all. It almost looks like a massive lump of coal. Yeah. Which is... And the, the, there's a bunch of like men Soviet standing around standing that, that look very... Perturbed. Yeah. And, well, that one looks kind of di- and, and, like disturbed in a way. There's a gentleman in the standing in the middle who kind of looks... He looks sad. He does look upset and... Not happy. And unhappy, but also a bit disturbed about what he's witnessing. looking at. Yeah. yeah. So his body, or what is left of it was transported to Moscow for an official autopsy in a military hospital, but the cause of death was verified there, because, I mean, like, what else are you going to say? <laughs> the Soyuz 1 crash coordinates are 51.3613 degrees north and 59.5622 degrees east, which is about three kilometers west, west of Karabutak, province of Orenburg. There is a memorial mo- monument at the site in the form of a black column with a bust of Komarov at the top in a small, in a small park on the roadside. Komarov is, was posthumously awarded a second gold star and was given a state funeral where his ashes were interred in the Kremlin wall adjoining Korolev. The Soyuz tragedy delayed further launches until October 1968. The 18-month gap with the addition of the explosion of an unmanned N1 rocket in July 1969 scuttled Soviet plans of landing a cosmonaut on the moon. The original mission of Soyuz 1 and Soyuz 2 was ultimately completed by Soyuz 4 and 5. So... The crash of Soyuz, while the crash or while the, the the fire of Apollo One didn't stop the Apollo program, the obliteration of the Soyuz One pretty much ended the Soviets wanting to go to space, yeah. or not go to space, but go to the moon. There were some other circumstances too, but that was a big one. They just they had to take a break, and by that point they were behind, and it was like, no. <laughs> but a much improved Soyuz program emerged from this delay, mirroring improvements made in Project Apollo after the Apollo One tragedy. And though it failed to reach the moon, the Soyuz went on to be repurposed from the centerpiece of the lunar program to the people carrier of the Salyut space station, the Mir space station, and the International Space Station. So it, uh, it lived on. Although it suffered another tragedy with Soyuz 11 in 1971 and went through several incidents with non-fatal launch aborts and landing mishaps, it has become one of the longest-lived and most dependable manned spacecraft designed yet. So Chris Hadfield was in a Soyuz. The guy who just got back was in the Soyuz. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his name now. And, um, yeah, so Komarov, the astronaut, or the cosmonaut who died a fiery death, has been commemorated in two memorials left on the lunar surface. So even though he never made it to the moon and neither did Soyuz, Komarov is commemorated on the moon. One of them is at Tranquility Base by Apollo 11 and the fallen astronaut statue plaque left by Apollo 15. So... He did kind of make it. He made it. And it's also kind of a nice gesture by the Americans. Yeah. Gagarin had accompanied Komarov to the rocket launch before launch, or the rocket before launch, and relayed instructions to Komarov from ground control following multiple system failures aboard the spacecraft. 
Following the crash, Gagarin was permanently banned from training for and participating in further space flights. And then, eventually, he got that back and then also died. So. Yeah. Yeah. Really sad for the Russian program. They lost, lost a lot of people. I mean, the yeah. Americans did too. Don't get me wrong, but certainly, uh, just yeah, pretty heartbreaking. This is the nail, last nail in the coffin for this Russian space program for a while. But yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, Korolev's death really, really was a big one. Like when he died, the Soviet space program pretty much also died for a while. Yeah. Um, the reason that it got, like, he was he was truly, like, it's actually hard to understate, like, actually how important and brilliant he was, because he is the one who made this happen. Like, Glushko had been working on things during, like, had been working on things before Korolev got there and could never get to the level of even the Germans. And once Korolev got there, it was like, boom, got this figured. Yeah. So it's, like, hard to understate the importance of him to the program, whereas I think the Americans, like... Von Braun was incredibly important, but, like, at some point wasn't as involved as other people, you know? So, yeah. like, there was clearly enough <clears throat> talent at NASA. Like, I think that was just the advantage of NASA is part of the advantage of being, a, a, I guess it's kind of comes down to the, the capitalist model versus the communist model, right? Like, yeah. Um, more talent available. There were more people willing to go over to... <laughs> to the Americans. Yeah, exactly. Good things are on the horizon, though. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, that was the end of the sad parts. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, with people flocking to space, it was decided in January 1967, or I guess before that a little bit, but there should be a treaty regarding outer space. So the treaty represented the basic legal framework of international space law because we'd been going there enough that it was like, okay, we should probably regulate this, maybe kind of like oceans and shit. Among its principles, bar states party to the treaty for placing weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbit, installing them on the moon or any other celestial body, or otherwise stationing them in outer space. It exclusively limits the moon or the use of the moon and other celestial bodies to peaceful purposes and expressly prohibits their use for testing weapons of any kind, conducting military maneuvers or establishing military bases, installations, and fortifications. However, the treaty does not prohibit the placement of conventional weapons in orbit, and thus, some highly destructive attack strategies such as kinetic bombardment are still potentially allowable. Although not terribly possible yet. The treaty also states that the exploration of outer space shall be done to benefit all countries and that space shall be free for exploration by use of, and use by all states. The treaty explicitly forbids any government to claim a celestial resource such as the moon or a planet. Article 2 of the treaty states that the outer space... Eric states that, quote, outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to a national appropriation by claim or of sovereignty by means of, by means of use or occupation or by any other means. However, the state that launches a, state, a space object retains jurisdiction and control over that object. The state is also liable for damages caused by its space object. So all that junk that these countries have left out there, they're kind of responsible for that shit. I, I think, like, part of, again, to remember with the space race is uh, it also coincided with the arms race. And the Soviets and Americans, as they built up their nuclear arsenals, were more and more concerned about each other putting those in space. So, and also nuclear tests in space had happened. So, yeah, some concerns. They just wanted to see what would happen. Yeah. So there was some concerns and they signed a treaty. The Outer Space Treaty was opened for signature in the United States, the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union on January 27th, 1967 and entered into force on October 10th, 1967. As of June 2019, 109 countries are parties to the treaty, while another 23 have signed the treaty but have not completed ratification. 
So oh, there that's you go. cool. Hopefully that everyone can agree to go clean up space yeah, junk. Yeah, Jesus Christ. But, I mean, I will say that the treaty went a long way in, like, creating the joint... Like, this, 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 without this treaty, we wouldn't really be where we're at today with space exploration because, like, the Americans have relied heavily on the Soyuz program, for instance, recently to get their people to space. Yeah. And, like, the International Space Station was one of the most important and big moments in just cooperation between all of these countries in space. And that would never have happened without something like this, right? Because they would have been constantly scared of arming space. Yeah, really. Stashing nuclear weapons in space. Oh, God. Which would have ended poorly for everyone. Definitely. So, yeah. Well, the Apollo is still going on. Yeah. It was still running strong. and But prior to the Apollo 11 mission, there were test flights made to orbit the moon. Probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Apollos 4 through 6 were unmanned test flights to ensure the propulsion systems were correct. And uh, there were no Apollo 2 or Apollo 3 programs. They just skipped. They just jumped right to 4. Seems legit after Apollo 1. Yeah. Apollo 7 was launched on October 11th, 1968 with a three-man crew making it the first crewed orbital flight of the Earth. It lasted 10 days. Could you imagine orbiting... You you orbit the moon or you orbit the Earth quite a bit in in a short amount of time, so ten days you're going around the the Earth like hundreds of times. Yeah. Apollo eight launched on December twenty first, nineteen sixty eight, with three crew uh, on the first orbital flyby of the moon. The crew included Jim Lovell, who would later be on the Apollo thirteen mission, which we will be talking about next year. Yeah, we're gonna do an episode on that one too. The mission made 10 lunar orbits in 20 hours and successfully returned to Earth on December 27th. Apollo 9 tested portable life support systems to be used on the moon, and Apollo 10 was a test flight to the moon with the landing module, or LM, as it's, or LAM, as it's commonly known as, flying down to about 15 kilometers above the lunar surface before the crew returned to the command module. The way Apollo, the Apollo crews were chosen was quite simple. They weren't chosen based on merit, achievement, or status as NASA's manager of the astronaut program, Deke Slayton, which is an awesome name, Great name. and a former astronaut, instead picked the crew almo- crews almost as at random as he believed any person could complete the mission successfully. There would be a chosen crew and a backup crew in case of a change, such as like one astronaut getting sick or an entire crew grounded for whatever reason. The backup crew would then be chosen as the main crew for the following mission. So the Apollo 11 crew, as you're probably wondering, if you don't already know, in which case you're living under a rock, I was, gonna say. <laughs> was Commander Neil Armstrong, who was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, a Korean War veteran. See, I told you he was coming back. Oh. A pilot trainer and a test pilot. He also previously went into space on the Gemini 8 program. And, yeah. Yeah, there's a few programs that we did not really talk about that happened in between here. Yeah, but... (laughs) They're less important. Pretty much. Command module pilot Michael Collins, later he later became a major general in the U.S. Air Force Reserves and was previously on the Gemini 10 mission. He piloted the command module and remain, would remain in orbit over the moon during the mission. So he's the one who did not go on the moon. 
Finally, there was Edwin. Sucks to have to be that guy. Yeah, really. Finally, there was Edwin Buzz Aldrin, who's probably the most famous. Famous. Well, outside of Armstrong. Outside of Armstrong. And he was the lunar module pilot. Buzz had previously been on the Gemini 12 mission. Among the thousands of people who worked on the mission, Margaret Hamilton deserves a mention. She was the woman who developed the onboard flight software. Important shit. the program, yeah. There's a famous photo of her next to a huge stack of papers that are like almost like just taller than her. And that is the program she wrote for the, for the, uh, for the in-flight. She also, along with her te- a team from MIT, she also developed the error detection and recovery software. So she was very crucial yeah, to the mission. Yeah, she, uh, in one of the critical moments of the mission, the Apollo guidance computer together with the onboard flight software during Apollo 11 averted an abort of the landing on the moon. Yeah, she's, she's real important. Yeah. She founded Hamilton Technologies in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2016 for her work on this project. I actually don't know that much about her. I know a lot more about Katherine Johnson. There's, a, there's been a lot more coming out about her recently than... I think that's the case with, like, generally with a lot of female scientists and people who are involved in these projects because, I mean, like, Hidden Figures just came out, like, a couple years ago. Like, more and more of these stories are starting to come out of, like, hey, we there's more about this than we really talked yeah, about. Really. And we should probably bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean... She was the friggin' director of software engineering of MIT, so yep. and that's where she de- she designed. Uh, and she's still alive. Yeah, she's eighty-two. So I'm certain she's going to be at the celebrations that are happening at the time of this, not at the time of this recording, but at the time of this, uh, by the time this is released. Yeah, she uh, actually also fun fact is one of the people credited with coining the term software engineering. Sweet. So. There you go, software engineers. Thank you, Margaret Hamilton. Thank Margaret Hamilton, if you haven't already. Yeah. So on February 8th, 1968, the Apollo Site Selection Board revealed five potential landing zones on the moon. It wasn't as simple to just simply pick a random spot because the zone needed to be near the lunar equator in order to lessen the amount of required propellant to land. And it needed to be cleared of debris to ease maneuvering and flat in order to soften the landing. Easier, kind of easier said than done, especially on the moon. Um, yeah. So site one and two were in what's known as the Sea of Tranquility. Site three was in Central Bay, and sites four and five were in the Ocean of Storms, which are pretty cool names, I gotta say. Yeah. In the end, site two was chosen, with sites three and five chosen as backups in case something went wrong. At the first Apollo 11 crew press conference, the men were asked... Quote, which one of you gentlemen will be the first man to step on the lunar surface? End quote. Slayton replied that the decision had not yet been made, and Armstrong added the decision was, quote, not based on individual desire. End quote. The decision to have Armstrong be the first person to step out on the moon is actually disputed. And Armstrong has even been accused of exercising commander privilege to be chosen. If you know what Armstrong's personality was in real life, you know that this is not surprising. No, it's oh, not true. Yeah. yeah. It's like not true at all. However, Buzz maintains to this day his belief the decision was made simply due to the location of the lamb's hatch was just next to Armstrong. 
Chris Kraft, who was a NASA manager at the time, wrote in his 2001 autobiography, the decision was made out of the desire to have a composed, quiet person akin to Charles Lindbergh be the first man on the moon. So parts of the rocket began to arrive at the Kennedy Space Center in January 1969, and over the next few months, preparations were made and final checks were done over and over again to ensure all things would go smoothly. Soon, the day of launch arrives. Oh, shit. We're there. Oh, but shit. before we get there, it's almost as if I'm about to go into an ad, but we're not doing that. But no, but before we get there, how does the Apollo 11 rocket work? Good so the ro- the rocket is used, it's called the Saturn V. Which is a which big is, motherfucking yeah, rocket. It's yeah, it's the long one that kind of looks like a syringe. It's a big motherfucking rocket. It's huge, <laughs> yeah. So the rocket itself is comprised comprised of three phases in order to propel Apollo 11 into orbit. And the Apollo 11 spacecraft was actually at the top of the rocket. The rocket itself was not part of Apollo. Apollo was just the top bits of it. And they also had three phases. So the first component was the compartment protecting the lunar module during launch. The module would be the actual craft to land on the moon. And it was 10 feet in height and weighed around 36,100 pounds with the crew inside of it. So, not light. No. And I'm sad to say I did email NASA to ask what the landing module was made out of. And they didn't. And they didn't get back to me. Maybe they'll get back to me soon. But I actually... Please, NASA. Please. Other than gold, I actually have no idea what the Yeah, it's not listed anywhere. I imagine it's probably... I don't know. Is it a secret? I don't know. I don't know if it's a secret. I just don't think it's well known. Anywhere. The second component was the service. No one thought it was important. Yeah, for sure. The second component was the service module, fitting fitted with propulsion systems used to both enter and escape orbit. So this is what was used to propel the air, the spacecraft onto its maiden, like to add its actual flight in space to the moon and back home. Third was the command module, which housed the three astronauts for the majority of the flight and was also designed to safely return them through the fiery atmosphere. This is also where their air tanks were contained that would, you know, provide them with oxygen so they could live. And it also be where their food was stored and also where their water was made because they could actually, they actually devised instruments to make water. A final component was the launch escape system At designed... the suits had been fixed. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> So a final component was the launch escape system designed to safely pull the command module away from the rocket in the event of an actual launch, in case of an accidental launch. That's what that little, that needle looking point at the very top of the rocket actually is. It was never used during any of the Apollo missions, thankfully, but it was there. So that's an important step. So the rocket had also three stages. Stage one propelled the rocket to 68 kilometers above Earth. Stage two propelled it to 166 kilometers as well as ditched the launch escape system because it was no longer needed and would actually probably no longer work at that altitude. Yeah. And stage three fired briefly to launch Apollo 11 into orbit, which would ship, which the ship would fly around while final safety checks were made and calculations were done. At the right moment, the rocket would fire again to launch Apollo 11 on its journey to the moon. After each of these stages were completed, they, they would just fall off. And uh, some of it would, and the latter two stages would just simply burn up in the atmosphere. Get rid of the space junk. 
On the morning of July 16, 1969, at 4 a.m., the crew and backup crew of Apollo 11 were awoken, where they were consumed a meal of steak and eggs, which was actually a traditional pre-flight meal for astronauts at the time. It's also a, it was also the meal given to uh, soldiers on D-Day. It was their last meal on the ships before they yeah, got yeah. to D-Day, which is funny because it's actually like the worst possible thing to feed them. Like, it's a heavy meal yeah. that's super protein heavy, and you're going to get sick. Yeah. Same with the astronauts. That's not ideal. Immediately after the meal and a little bit of chatting, <laughs> I assume, because they're all friends. Oh, like, yeah. you got to remember, they're all buds. For sure. They were. They immediately put on their spacesuits and were and put on their visors and were and began to pure solely pure oxygen from then on. They would basically be breathing pure oxygen from here until the end of the mission. Oh, just a little. Which is it's, it's a long. Which is interesting because yeah, like the Soviets, their their system was twenty or eighty percent oxygen, twenty percent nitrogen. Oh really? Yeah, and I'm like curious about the diff. Like, why? Yeah. Science people, tell me why. At 6.30 a.m., the crew were brought to the launch complex 39 where Apollo 11 was waiting for them. So you can imagine them driving up to this gargantuan structure. My parents have been there, actually. Really? Yeah. I'd love to go. The men were... When the men entered the command module around 7 a.m., were sealed in, and the cabin was pressurized. Countdown became automated at 3 minutes, 20 seconds to launch. In the firing room, over 450 personnel were glued to their consoles as final checks were done prior to launch. Over 1 million spectators gathered to watch the launch where they lined the nearby highways and beaches. Those invited to watch included Army Chief of Staff at the time, William Westmoreland, four members of cabinet, 19 state governors, 40 mayors, 60 ambassadors, and 200 members of Congress. Vice President Spiro Agnew, which is a hilarious name, by the way. I love Spiro Agnew's name. Was present with Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson. Also well, love Lady Bird Johnson yeah. so much. While President Nixon watched a live broadcast from the White House with NASA liaison officer and former astronaut Frank Borman. Of course Nixon didn't want to go to the beach. He couldn't go to the beach. I know. Just saying. So... Um, it was an opportunity to throw shade yeah. at Nixon, I'm sorry. Approximately 3,500 members of the press were present, and an estimated 25 million Americans tuned in to watch. Millions more listened on the radio, and the broadcast went out to 33 countries. So this was, this was a big deal. Everyone knew this was going to be the, the mission that landed on the moon. There's some hype. Oh, yeah. At 9.32 a.m., Apollo 11 launched and entered Earth's orbit 12 minutes later. The craft made one and a half moon orbits, one and a half Earth orbits, excuse me. So they made one and a half Earth orbits while preparations were made, and the final engine burn was made to launch Apollo 11 towards the moon in a slingshot effect called the translunar injection. 30 minutes into the lunar travel, the, the LM was removed from its compartment. The command module then had to make a 180-degree turn and attach the nose of the command module to the lunar module before turning back 180 degrees facing the moon. So you can imagine how daunting that task was. Because yep. if, like, one misstep happened, they would have crashed right into the lunar module. And at the, the best chance they had is that they'd lost their chance on the moon. The worst chance is they would just, like, die. It was very daunting, and it had to be done manually, so you can imagine that. But here's what's interesting. The entire process from launch 
to Landing? connect to no oh, to, to, from launch to connecting the right. lunar yeah. module only took three hours three and a half hours hmm. so it's done pretty quick yeah. there's a lot of shit done within that time and to make also make a one and a or yeah one and a half earth orbits in that short amount of time these guys were going thousands of kilometers an hour ripping through space yes you could say they were out for a rip oh god <laughs> On July 19th, Apollo 11 reached the moon and fired the service propulsion engine to allow it to enter lunar orbit. The crew <laughs> made 30 orbits around the moon, taking in several views of the landing site and what is no doubt probably the most amazing thing any human has ever seen up to that point. Yeah. You got to realize these people at that moment are the most isolated people in existence. Yeah. So if anything had gone wrong... They done, they're fucked. They would have been fucked, yes. Up shit creek. In fact, battle. Nixon actually wrote several eulogies in case yeah. either they died on launch, they died on the way back, they or they always died do getting that. to the Well, moon. Nixon's speechwriters wrote several eulogies. Yeah. They always do, though. Like, for every major military operation, too, like covert operations and stuff, like the president's pretty much prepared to have to give those types of calls. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're Trump and I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. He's Waves his arms angrily, blames Obama. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> on July 20th, Armstrong and Aldrin donned their multi-layered spacesuits before entering the LM, which from here on out is going to be known as Eagle. At 1.46 p.m. A bit more East... majestic than Gagarin's call sign, which was Cedar. <laughs> yeah, really. So at 1.46 Eastern Daylight Time, Collins fired the explosive bolts connecting Columbia, which is the command module. And Eagle, together, sending the latter out into the open, drifting towards the moon. Armstrong positioned Eagle so Collins could inspect the landing gear and ensure it was prepared for lunar landing. He reported all is well, and Eagle began its descent to the lunar surface. Thing I forgot to mention is those legs that were on the LM and are still on the moon today, they're made by Canadians. Woo! All the folks who were... Ended up being laid off from the Arrow program after the Avro Arrow was canceled. They all got hired by NASA and they built the legs. And that's actually being commemorated on a stamp that our Governor General, who was an astronaut, which is fucking cool, just unveiled. And it's of the lunar module with a bit of an emphasis on the legs. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of funny. It's but pretty badass that it is pretty badass. Governor was an astronaut. Yeah, she's pretty dope. I respect that. A minor problem on disengagement sent Eagle floating faster than predicted, meaning it would overshoot its landing zone by approximately four miles, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. a lot. Yeah. Especially, like, when you're on the moon. Yeah, you don't know where you're landing at that point. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem. Both Columbia and Eagle were circling the moon at thousands of miles per hour. Eagle had its legs pointing at its side, with Armstrong and Aldrin facing down towards the lunar surface. Communication with Eagle also had a lot of trouble, and Houston had to relay communication to Columbia, and then Collins had to relay that information to Eagle. 60s technology, man. I mean, there were... They got on, to the moon. They got to the moon. I mean, when you're kind of at that angle it's and you're coming good. down, yeah. and then, like, I mean, Collins was higher up than them, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of reasons why communication would actually yeah. suck. Five minutes into the flight... Eagle's 1201 and 1202 program alarms both sounded. 
Good. And both, both when they both sounded, it indicated what's known as executive overflows, or in layman's terms, it just means that the guidance computer could not complete the work, its required tasks in time and needed to postpone. However, the computer engineer Jack Garman informed guidance officer Steve Bales Eagle could continue to descend safely, and it was just a simple error in the alarm system. It was later determined that the alarms were a result from the radar switch, which was in the wrong position, confusing the computer by processing data from both the rendezvous point and the landing zone simultaneously. So it was getting conflicting information. That's good. But this almost aborted, like they were close to aborting the mission because of this, but the guy said, no, it'll be fine. Like he predicted something like this might happen. Yeah, this was part of... uh... Hamilton, like Hamilton became involved at this point because the Apollo guidance computer, yeah, with the on flight, on flight, onboard flight software was uh, not going great. And it avo- they, they averted an abort of the moon landing because three minutes before the lunar lander reached the moon surface, yeah. They, they all triggered, but like Margaret Hamilton's team got involved because uh, it had been, she'd like, yeah, she'd used the software and so they yeah. kind of knew how to like fix it. And they, <laughs> they're always thinking like ten steps ahead. Yeah. So they predicted that a, that yeah. this could be an issue, but and it ended up being an issue, but not a catastrophic one. Thankfully, yeah. pretty soon Armstrong could clearly see the landing zone, but unfortunately, overshot that. <laughs> well, he knew he was not going to be able to make it in time. Yeah. So, but he managed to find a clear patch nearby and turned Eagle towards it. So he started maneuvering, having well, Buzz started maneuvering at this point. With 90 seconds of propellant left, Armstrong cautiously worked to position Eagle. Eagle finally made a soft-ish landing. It was turned right side up to land on the legs. And then they would shoot, fire these pit, like miniature pistons and whatnot. And then they would, shut, they would stop firing and it just softly landed on the moon. That's why when you when you like see photos of the land, there's no like disturbance on the ground. It's because they just literally let it drip down and go poof. Yep. Exactly. Armstrong spoke to Houston saying, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Armstrong and Aldrin spent the next three and a half hours preparing to leave Eagle and onto the moon's surface. And I gotta say, both men were actually very eager to leave Eagle. Because as one ramped as fuck, as one uh, TED Talk person described, he said they were basically in a floating Coke can. Yeah, it was not a comfortable ride, and it was kind of scary. Yeah, because not very thick walls, definitely. So they were pretty eager to get out. Armstrong depressurized Eagle and turned the cr- and left the craft as he walked down the ladder. Six million people watched live from home. My mom included. Yeah. She was nine years old. While on the ladder, Armstrong removed a cover revealing a plaque which read, quote, Here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon. July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind. As he made made it to the last step, he described what he was about to step on as a fine, looking like a finely ground powder, and then said, Okay, I'm going to step off the lamb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. I'm going to step off the limb. 
His foot touched the ground, and humans had finally walked on the moon. What's funny is in the in one of the uh, broadcasting, the broadcasters couldn't understand what he said. He said so. So they would say on the thing, they're like, "I heard the first. I uh, he said something, but I couldn't quite understand it." And then the other broadcaster says, "It's one small step for man, but I have no idea what the next part is." Now, what's interesting is that his he. For the rest of his life, Armstrong claims he said one small step for a man, but it's when you hear it on the thing, it's he's clearly missing the a. Yeah. And he had written down that he had that that's what he was going to say. Yeah. But I think just like the whole moment, moment he missed missed the a. But now it's like makes it even more iconic in my. Yeah, it totally does. Opinion. I don't think it's the same quote if it's a man. No, definitely not. It, it takes away like the symbolicness of like the unity of like all humans absolutely yeah armstrong described the moon's surface as i said before as quote a very very fine grained almost a powder it's also described as being a caked mud or flour um consistency to it aldrin soon joined armstrong and stood in a sudden stunned silence before declaring magnificent desolation because you got to remember these are the most well Actually, the, at this point, the most isolated human being is Collins. Yeah, just floating around floating in space. Floating around in space around the moon. Just chilling. Just waiting. Even probably, though he probably pretty fucking jealous. He's not on the moon. No, he didn't actually feel he's because he's like he knew he had an extremely important Job. role. Yeah, yeah. So he knew he was still yeah super significant. Oh yeah. And he apparently never felt lonely in the in the in Colombia that whole time, which. I probably would. Uh-huh. I, I mean, would have probably... felt the crushing weight of my existence at yeah, that point. But I think he was also like, oh, I got some space now. Yeah, probably could actually enjoy himself yeah. a little. <laughs> Stretch. Armstrong reported movement on the lunar surface was actually relatively easy, jokingly saying, quote, easier than the simulations. Gravity on the moon is actually predicted to be one-sixth that of Earth's. So there's some, at least. So there's some, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of resistance. No. But... Uh, they're like, for example, the soil was very slippery, so they would, I've seen videos of like uh, the other astronauts slipping and they're just kind of like, it takes a moment for them to re, like, to adjust themselves and get back, like standing upright. Yeah. And apparently the same things happened to Armstrong and Buzz and Buzz, excuse me. Can you imagine just stepping off the lunar module and just just eating eating shit on the moon? (laughs) You just eat shit on the moon? Like, oh, all right. Well, that was not graceful. One of the next, like one of the next things they did was they had an American flag with them that they put up in the view of the cameras, and they actually struggled to get this thing up. Like there was a bit of a struggle because they couldn't get the pole in to the ground. pretty deep in the ground. They could only get it a few inches apparently, but they managed to get it upright. And like um, one of, the, I'm going to mention the moon conspiracy thing briefly because like one of the the dumbest one i heard is like the fact the that the waving. flag is waving means yeah. there's a breeze it's like i mean th- first of all the last thing like the the last thing you're not going to expect is a flag to move a bit strangely yeah. right you're in a vacuum yeah i mean like if if a light crashed from the ceiling okay yeah like yeah. it's fake if the moon 
if the flag moves a bit strangely, okay. Like there, that's within reasonable. There is but the, air not like not air movement, but there is like well, air movement essentially in yeah. space. It's not air, well, but it's, it, there's movement, yeah. but it's just that there's no resistance. Yeah. So once something starts moving, it doesn't motion. yeah, it doesn't stop yeah. moving for a long time. It's the first mover. So that's, that's the reason why the flag. But uh, yeah, and also they kind of had a f- issues getting it unraveled, yeah. which is seen on yeah. on the broadcast, which is hilarious. But they did it. So they that flag is still on the moon, but it's now completely white because of the radiation. Radiation, yeah. Also, another thing is that they found walking on the moon actually wasn't hard. No, it was diff- yeah. like it wasn't, wasn't easy. But. Wasn't easy. So they would like you see videos of them kind of making those long kind yep. of strides. That's because that's Boosters. how easy. Yeah, that's how easy. It was so much more easy. Yeah. To almost like a get, run. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a hop like along, a, like a prancing like a gazelle. Yeah. <laughs> so they, that's this, like the running man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At this point, Nixon actually made a personal phone call to the men, which is amazing that they could do that. Yeah. Well, not only that they could actually broadcast it live from the yeah, moon. But also that the Obviously, we don't believe in the moon landing conspiracy. I don't believe in any of them, not yeah. even the that they faked the footage. Cause I don't really believe in many conspiracies. I don't really believe in any conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, my friend Matt, I can't <clears> explain <throat> it, but my friend Matt explained how it was possible for them to do it. And it's I'm like, yeah, that's legit. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anyway, they did. They went on the moon. And they I mean, it. technology was clearly good enough to get to the fucking moon, so it's obviously good enough to broadcast. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it looks grainy as shit oh, anyway. Yeah. It's but, not you good, know. but that's but actually it. a reason I believe it wasn't faked, is because if it was faked, it'd look a lot fucking better. Oh, yeah, exactly. But uh, aside, that aside, uh, Nixon called this phone phone call, quote, the most historic phone, telephone call ever made. During this phone call, he congratulated them both and wished them a safe journey home. The men then deployed what is called an EASEP, which is a device meant to detect and collect data on moonquakes because there are quakes on the moon, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. As well as how it's a lunar laser ranging experiment, which would shoot a laser at the moon and like, or at the moon, at the hmm. earth yeah. and kind of predict its, like show its position as it's going around. Yeah. Because the same face of the moon always faces the Earth. Earth, yeah. Which is interesting. It is interesting. So, I mean, it wasn't until, like, the last couple of years that we finally got an image of the dark side of the moon. Yeah. Interesting enough, I'm wearing my... The dark side of the I'm moon I'm wearing t-shirt. my dark side of the moon. I did plan that. I know you did. So. Of course, <clears> many ro- soil and rock samples were taken. And if you watch that movie, Apollo 18, apparently they crawl away like spiders. It's a dumb movie, it but is a very anyway. dumb movie. Um, they didn't crawl away like spiders. No. Some of the rocks have gone missing in the past few years, but I think it's just they've been either misplaced or stolen. I think so. So, oh. this is my favorite. This is my favorite quote of the moon landing. Armstrong had a moment where he was looking up at the at a blue dot in the sky, and this is his description of the event. It suddenly struck me that that tiny pea pretty and blue was the earth i put up my thumb and shut one eye and my thumb blotted out the planet earth i didn't feel like a giant i felt very very small so definitely yeah they felt the gravity no pun intended of their situation legit no pun intended but you say that but it was uh, anyway so they felt 
like just imagine being in that situation like it's probably one of the it's probably one of if not the most extraordinary views i would say it's possibly the most mind-blowing experience anybody could have yeah and you're also kind of like that must have been the moment where like he's kind of had like for the most part had his mind kind of set on doing 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 his duty and whatnot and then that was the moment where he probably gets to kind of take a sigh of like take a breath and be like shit i'm here yeah but he was that was probably the moment where he's like i'm on the moon holy shit for buzz i think it was when he said magnificent desolation yeah i think for buzz like maybe because uh armstrong had more not to say he had more responsibility, but he might have had more. His brain was probably maybe focused on other tasks a little yeah, more. Yeah, so. I, I would say that. And he was also the first one off, so he had a second to kind of like compose, think and compose, yeah, and himself. compose himself. And then Buzz like just kind of just got off. And was like, oh, yeah, and they just uh, kind of immediately looked up. Yeah. They took a lot of photos too, and like one thing I should mention is that their cameras were mounted again on their chest. Which is interesting. Which is yeah. why, like, you don't see, like, it would a, be stupid to, for them to hold up a camera yeah. in front of well, their they visors. Need their hands. Yeah, and they had to turn the iris <coughs> down a lot. That's why you can't see any stars in the background mm-hmm. because too much light. No, there's not. There's no oh, light. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's basically no light coming in because yeah. they had to turn it down so much because, like, yeah. if they kept it up. For enough to see in the stars, it would just be completely white. These photos. That's, well, that's what I mean. There's too much light exposure, so they had to turn the. Yeah, because the cameras. Down. As as it's pretty well known, the moon is extremely reflective. Yeah. So yeah, like they could have gone blind if they if they didn't have those special uh-huh. face masks. Exactly. So they spent twenty one and a half hours on the moon. So that's significant. A long time, but eventually Aldrin and Armstrong returned to Eagle. And began making their preparations to return. They reportedly kept their helmets on actually when they returned to Columbia. Yeah, because the case. dust. Well, the oh. dust was so finely ground; it just stuck to everything. everything. And they had nothing to clean it off because they didn't like have a cloth predict yeah. that. And so they were worried about it getting in the their eyes, also mm-hmm. in the instruments. It turned out to not be a problem, but like it was. It's a fair concern, though. And it just sticks. Yeah. And so. They kept their helmets on. They took them off briefly and then realized dust was, like, floating around, so they put it back on until they reached Columbia again. So Eagle launched itself from the lunar surface in time to reconnect with Columbia, still flying overhead. And this is actually the first space launch that was not made from Earth. So the legs were left behind along with the plaque. Eagle positioned itself mid-flight and briefly reconnected with Columbia in order to transfer the samples, data, and the crew before it was disengaged and allowed to just float off for eternity pretty much or crash on the lunar surface possibly but whatever happens first so just past the moon's halfway point columbia made what is known as the trans earth injection which sent it back propelling towards home columbia reached earth's orbit on july 24th 44 hours after leaving lunar orbit once there columbia shifted several degrees and disengaged the final jet system, letting it fall and burn up in orbit. Columbia was now that small cone-shaped vessel, and the entire bottom of this part of the vessel was a heat shield and took the entire force of Earth's atmosphere as it descended. So Earth's atmosphere is hot. Oh, uh, yeah. Especially when you're going, like... Real fucking fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fast enough to get through it. Exactly. So... But the way this actually worked, like, okay, for example, like, the temperatures reached up to 2,760 degrees Celsius, which is 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Yeah, I don't. Our ovens can't even get anywhere near that. that. Well, that melts. Well, I mean, that's why other space disasters have happened in this coming into at like because of the heat tiles and stuff, right? Like, yeah. the rest of the craft will melt and or explode or both. Yeah. <laughs> without proper protection. Yeah, the heat shield is what's known as an ablative. It meaning it was actually designed to melt and erode away when heat when heated up, thus diverting heat away as it vaporized. So it deflected heat away from the. Yeah. It would kind of spread it. Yeah. Out like that. Disperses it. Yeah, so disperses it's not it at an on. angle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would still be probably praying at this point. I'm not I, a praying man. I'd be shitting bricks. Yeah. <laughs> Scary. Be probably the scariest part of the whole journey, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have a problem with landing on a plane. Yeah. So viewers from the ground actually noted that it looked like Columbia was on fire, but it wasn't. It's just that it was deflecting the heat. There was fire. It just wasn't on fire. Yep. So the atmosphere acted as an actual, actually acted as a natural braking system, and it slowed the the command module down as it descended. Although it was... Didn't didn't do that for Soyuz. (laughs) No, but, and and they knew it wasn't going to be enough to slow it down to a safe speed. speed. So the last, one of the last things that, the Columbia did was it launched a mortar deployed parachutes in order to further slow it. There was also like a bit of propulsion like to slow it down. It's like pulling a landing gear. Just like pretty whoop. much, yeah. You pull it and then it goes, <laughs> yeah. and then boom, these parachutes come out and it just slows it down. Apollo 11 finally touched down into the North Pacific Ocean between Hawaii, the Marshall Islands, and Kiribati at 5.44 a.m. local time which is 4.44 p.m. UTC. After 195 hours, 18 minutes, and 35 seconds total of the mission. Just over eight days. So think about that. That Apollo, uh, that one Apollo, Apollo 7 was 10 days orbiting the Earth. Yep. So it took less time to get to, to the moon, get to the moon land on bit. the moon, get back on the moon, from the moon, and land. Yeah. Get to the moon, hang out for a minute, like, check some <laughs> shit out, and then leave. Like, took less time. Pretty much. The crew was picked up by the USS Hornet and placed immediately into quarantine. Yeah, that's Until right. they were cleared by NASA physician William Carpenter on August 10th. So, literally, Woof. they were isolated from the moment they stepped in the capsule. Yeah. Those eight days in space until August 10th. They were in isolation. Whatever. I mean, it was a lot more spacious than... It was a little more comfortable than... Yeah, Eagle, probably. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So, yeah, from the moment they entered the entered the spacecraft until August 10th, they were effectively in quarantine. Because they, I mean, they didn't know. There might Space have been disease. extraterrestrial diseases. They didn't know. What's funny is there's actually a famous... Space cooties. Yeah, <laughs> space cooties from Martian Woman. So Richard Nixon actually visited the men during their quarantine. There's actually a really awesome photo of, like, him, of them looking through the window. Yeah. At Nixon, it's a bigger window, yeah. obviously, and yeah. Nixon standing outside. I'm gonna, po- I'll post that to the Facebook page as well. But yeah, there's and they're separated by the glass, and you know, but they can still communicate. Yep. Needless to say, the three men were became mega celebrities upon their return, and on you August, don't say. And after they, were, yeah, and at, after they were released from quarantine on August 13th, they were given a full parade in their honor in New York City and then were flown to Chicago and given another, another parade. Well, Shepard got three, so... Yeah. It get, this gets 
Great, though. So a total of 6 million people combined came out to see them in both New York and Chicago. After Chicago, they were flown to Los Angeles for a state dinner at the Century Plaza Hotel. Attended by many members of Congress, 44 governors, then Chief Justice of the United States, William E. Berger, and ambassadors from 83 countries. I just like that name, William E. Berger. It's a great name. Yeah. All three men were presented with the Presidential Medal of Freedom with distinction by Richard Nixon. This is day one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. All this happened on day one. I mean, like, one. Gagarin just got promoted in space. These guys, like, they got a lot. They, they got, got they pampered, got man. Yeah. I mean, to be fair. They I went would, to the fucking moon. So I would think sense. that, like, for me, this would be more overwhelming than being on the moon. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably. So I'm sure it was for them. Yeah, this they're, they're used to having to put themselves in dangerous situations like that, yeah. right? They, that's what they trained for. It was yeah. like still shocking to be on the moon because it's like, holy shit, yeah. we're on the moon. But it's like they were able, they were still doing a job so you can detach yourself. Whereas like this is just like, this is not what they're used to. This no. is not something they trained for. They probably they're didn't have now any media training. Suddenly well-known names across the world. <laughs> yeah. Every household in the United States knows who these people are. Yeah. It's crazy. So, on after they made like several appearances throughout the month of August and like press conferences and like showing what they like photos they took on the moon and blah blah blah. Well, the next big thing that happened was on September 16th, all three men spoke before a joint session of Congress where they gifted both the House and the Senate each with their own American flag that had been brought to the moon with them. They also brought a flag of American Samoa with them which is now at the Gene P. Hayden Museum in the capital of Pago Pago. That's cool. Yeah, I thought it was a good touch to do. Following the joint session, the the men embarked on a 38-day world tour where they visited 22 countries, met countless numbers of foreign leaders before returning home on November 5th. Yeah, so they were busy boys. (laughs) They were definitely busy boys. None of the men ever flew into space again, but I doubt you can really top Go to the moon. Yeah. Doing just a regular <laughs> orbit of Earth would be really anticlimactic after going to the yeah. moon. Yeah. I mean, I would retire after going to the moon, right, too, and you was like, I don't need to really boast. What anymore. the fuck else can I first, accomplish? You're the first people to go to the moon. Truly. Like, what else can? What else do you do after that? Like. So Armstrong reportedly became rather burnt out from the fame and eventually became a professor at the University of Cincinnati. According to friends and family, he was happy to be in an environment where he was simply known as Neil. In 1985, he became a secret he, be, he made a secret expedition to the North Pole with Sir Edmund Hillary and his son Peter. For those of you who don't know Sir Edmund Hillary, he was the first Westerner to reach the summit of Mount Everest. And Steve Fawcett, an aviation record breaker, and Patrick Morrow, a photographer and mountain climber from Invermere, British Columbia. Hmm. Armstrong maintained a private life after Apollo, known as, quote, a reluctant American hero. Despite rumors, he was actually not a recluse, just simply preferred not to partake in interviews and public appearances. So I think everyone as, assumes everyone's a recluse when they just don't want attention, yeah. but it's like, nope, just want to be normal. In the documentary by the American Experience about Neil Armstrong, Buzz, I think it was Buzz, he said he was a recluse to the media. Yeah, not to everyone else. Not to everyone else. No, he was, a, and like Armstrong, even beforehand, he was a quiet, reserved, like in a good way, reserved. Yeah. Didn't seek power or fame or anything like that. He was just... Wanted to be him. Wanted to be simple. Unfortunately, like, the fame did kind of affect his personal life a bit. He got divorced, but he remarried 
On August 25th, 2012, Armstrong passed away at the age of 92 from pretty much natural causes. I mean, when you're 92, it's... Buzz later said... Buzz was described as devastated upon learning Armstrong had died and has stated numerous times he had been hoping to stand with him and Collins at the 50th anniversary. That is coming up. This is very sad. I mean, we'll never forget the name Neil Armstrong ever. No. And to be such a laid-back, cool-minded person and everything, it's, it's pretty great. Like, he was a great man. Yeah. yeah. Aldrin went on to become a commandant for the USAF Aerospace Research Pilot School until his retirement in March 1972 as a colonel. Following the death of his father in 1974, Aldrin suffered from depression and struggled with alcoholism for many years, even facing an arrest before g- fully going sober in 1978. He actually legally changed his name to Buzz in 1988. The the story of where the name Buzz comes from is his younger brother couldn't pronounce the name Brother, so we call him Buzzer. And it just stuck stuck as Buzz, but he legally changed it to Buzz in 1988. So his legal name now is Buzz Aldrin, which is awesome. Funny enough, his uh, his nickname uh, during the Apollo program, like during the testing and whatnot, was Mr. Rendezvous. Mm. Or Dr. Rendezvous. It's amazing. After a uh, passage in his thesis, like the name of his thesis was had rendezvous in it. But yeah. awesome. he, la- he later founded the StarCraft Boosters, Inc. in 1996 with the goal of to design and produce re- reusable rocket launchers, which is now actually still working today. I love telling this story. On September 9th, 2002, conspiracy theorist and overall asshole Bart Seibrell C- made a, the mistake of tricking Aldrin to join him at the Beverly, at a Beverly Hills hotel under the guise of an interview. Instead, Cybril ambushed Aldrin, demanding he swear on a Bible the moon landing wasn't fake. Ignoring Aldrin's request to be left alone, Cybril continued to harass Aldrin, calling him a coward and a liar. Having had enough, Aldrin, then 72 years old, punched Cybril in the jaw, knocking him to the ground. Aldrin was not criminally charged, as witnesses stated... Stated and also Cybrel's video of the incident showed him repeatedly and aggressively following, poking and yelling at Aldrin despite being told several times to leave. In December 2016, Aldrin visited the uh, Amston Scott South Pole Station, becoming the oldest person to reach the South Pole. Sadly, he fell ill and had to be evacuated to Christchurch, New Zealand. Oh. But he made a recovery. Well, that's good. He had previously actually visited the North Pole in 1998. So it's funny that both Armstrong and Buzz had made pole expeditions. I mean, like, after you go to the moon, like, pole expeditions pretty much seem like the last great feat. Yeah. Like, exactly. again, what else do you do when you've it, been to the moon? Pretty much. I mean, you these guys were pretty much set for life. Yeah. Forever. Like, yeah. Yeah. Sexy they didn't have to worry all. about money or. No. Sexy Corvettes and all. There you go. Buzz remains alive today, having turned 89 as of this January 2019, and has been a major advocate for the Mars mission since 1985. He even appeared in a rap video called Rocket Experience with Quincy Jones, Talib, Kweli, Soldier Boy, and Snoop Dogg. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Akeem Talib, even. Collins is sadly the forgotten member of the Apollo 11 mission, even though he played an incredibly crucial role. Yep, they in the all would have died without him. Exactly. <laughs> He remained with NASA until 1970, 
then worked as the Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs at the Department of State. So he's pretty high up. The following year, he was named the director of the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. He successfully lobbied Congress and received $13 million directly with a further $27 million contract authority for the museum's construction. The museum completed construction on on budget and opened on July 1st, 1976. It's a cool museum. It is now one of the world's most popular museums and averages around 7 million visitors per year. Yeah, I've been. Collins is also the one responsible for having the Columbia CM, which is still on display in the front gallery today, to be placed at the Uh museum. I saw it. It's really cool. I'm so fucking That museum is really cool. What sucks is that, like, I only literally got 15 minutes in the museum. Oh, really? I ran through that, like, literally ran through that museum because we had, like, time to kill. I was on a school trip, and we had time to kill, kind of, and people wanted to spend more time at this other museum, and I was pissed because it meant that we got less time at the aerospace one right and so there was like a couple things i wanted to see like i wanted to see the saturn and i wanted to see the columbia that were there and then uh they had like i went and found some uh some zeros and like different like world mm. war ii planes they had a mustang they had a couple zeros i think they had a they had an me 109 too it was really cool. I just, like, fucking ran through that museum. I was, like, determined to see shit. I was yeah. like, I'm not letting this ruin my vacation. Well, hopefully Panastoria <laughs> so will I make... So I want to go back. Yeah, I'd love to make a trip, like, a, for Panastoria to make a trip to D.C. to go to all the Smithsonian They're institutes. pretty cool. I saw um, I saw Stephen Colbert's portrait in the American History nice. one. Nice. Fucking amazing. So he remained with the Aerospace Museum uh, until 1978 when he became undersecretary for the entire Smithsonian Institution. Good for him. Yeah. Clever dude. As far as museums go, I don't think anything really beats the Smithsonian in terms of, like, museum institutions, really. Oh, yeah. No. He was taken off active USAF duty in 1970, but he remained in the USAF reserves until retiring a major general in 1982. Collins would turn 89 this October and currently shares his time between North Carolina and Florida. So they're both still around. Yeah. Them, them, and, them and Valentina Tereshkova. Yeah, them. Living best lives. Them and the remaining eight surviving members of the Apollo program mm-hmm. will be present at, like, all throughout the celebrations this week of the yeah. Apollo mission. Because, like, holy shit, guys. Like, 50 years since this happened. The worst is that, like, I see companies, like, trying to capitalize on this. Like, Budweiser has this beer. <laughs> they have this, like, special, like you know, moon landing edition beer that they apparently lost the recipe for after they made it, like, during the moon landing. Right. And I'm like, okay, Budweiser, you weirdos. You probably just invested. You just probably just made this now, and you're just putting this spin on it. Yeah. Fuck fuck off, Anheuser-Busch. We found a secret lost episode of insert episode here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Or found footage films. Yeah. Like Apollo 18. Uh, (laughs) Anyway. So, of course, there were other moon landing yeah. missions. I think it went it went all the way to 17. And since then, we haven't been to the moon. Yeah. Before we started this, I was talking with Lindsay. I'm like, there is footage of the astronauts. In a, hitting, what, hitting uh, golf balls. Hitting off golf me. balls. Um, but I, I was thinking of one where they're skipping and they're singing, I was skipping on the moon one day. And then they argue about whether to say December or May because the song goes May, but it was happening in December. December. 
Um, so it's it just shows that the astronauts like, had really good humor and light hearts. Again, like, how do you not when you're on the moon? Like, how are you in a bad mood when you're on the moon? I would be... Like, like how... How can you not just be in the best mood possible on the moon? Oh my God, Lindsay, if we were to go to the moon, there'd be like a billion times where I'd just randomly like grab you and be like, we're on the fucking moon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'd make it to the moon. I'm too much of a chicken. I would do it. I would totally do it. But yeah, so there were 17, or, well, not 17, but it went all the way to 17. What's interesting is Apollo 12, Alan Shepard was actually on that mission and made it to the moon. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Of course, Jim Lovell and the rest of the crew in Apollo 13 did not make it to the moon, unfortunately. No. Or no, sorry, Alan Shepard was on Apollo 14. Yeah. Excuse me. He skipped 13. Yes. Um, well, he was, yeah. But uh, a fun fact also about Apollo 13, Katherine Johnson's calculations are the reason they survived. There you go. She brought them back. Yeah. You'll find out next year that the movie, while actually very accurate. Very good, too. Very, very good. They kept very calm throughout the whole ordeal. Yep. But we'll get to that. We'll talk about Apollo 13. But yeah, I'm super excited because I love moon yeah. stuff. I love space. Space is just so fascinating. But I'm excited to talk more about space. I really want to actually spend more time talking eventually maybe about like Tarskova too. Like, oh, yeah. I was going to bring her up in this episode, but just too much. Lindsay, um, and, Lindsay and I are like the space... A uh, ball from Portal going, space, space, gotta, gotta find space, gotta, gotta see it all. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, was, yeah. Yeah, We're, so. It's interesting because I'm not a science person no. at all. It was like my worst subject in Me school. Too. Especially like physics. I did okay I can't, in physics. I can't math worth shit. Like, I like, see the thing is, like, as a philosopher, like, I should like physics at least because or at least get something out of physics because we're ultimately trying to answer the same questions yeah but like i can't fucking math i suck at math well i can see you like in the theoretical so it's like yeah well i mean like theoretically it's similar but at that point i'm just gonna do philosophy because i don't want to math so um yeah and also first subject but yeah i uh Science was not my strong suit, but I'm, like, interested in it. I'm really interested in, like, the history of science and technology in general. Um, just, it's fascinating, like, uh, and just, like, technology, too. Like, to even think about, like, basic technology. Like, I took a class with um, Annie, who we're going to have on this ep- We're going to have on this podcast eventually. Just everyone be warned. Annie's coming on, and she's the best. But uh, we were talking just in this class, and it was about, so I can't remember what we were even really talking about, but somehow it got brought up, like the horse collar got brought up and how like the horse collar as like a, you know, a simple basic piece of harness completely changed like human, how humans lived because all of a sudden horses could pull more and so agriculture was a lot easier. And like just the history of technology in that sense is so fascinating. So like from something as simple as like just changing a leather strap on a horse's neck to like going to the fucking moon. Yeah. Like the history of technology is just really fascinating. And so even though I'm not good at doing it, like I'm not good at doing science, I think the history of science is really fascinating. Yeah. Here's some food for thought, people. All of the moon missions, the memory used for all of the moon missions, they had less memory space than USB sticks have today. And they managed to get all those people to the moon. That's like one of the things about the moon. Well, but even to think about how much of those compu- all the a lot of those calculations were done by hand. Like, like they had a computer by that point to help it. But like Catherine Johnson still checked those fucking numbers. Like they yeah. still were double checking that. Like now I don't know that 
I mean, I know that mathematicians and stuff are like employed by NASA, but we trust computers so much more because they're just so much more powerful and also easier to use. Yeah. Well, it's all, it's super exciting to find out that we're going to go back to the moon and we're building a, like a docking station that's going to perpetually orbit the moon, Yeah. which is awesome. So they dock there and then they're able to send reusable capsules down to the surface. Freaking awesome. Mm -hmm. And also it's our jumping point to getting to Mars. Yeah. Eventually. Still wouldn't go to Mars. No. Uh, oh, no. Hard pass. But, um, uh, unless there was no other choice. But, uh, um, yeah. So, that, uh, oh, just so that. fucking fascinating. I love it. Yeah. But, Honestly, um, I don't even have much else to say on it because it's just, like, I'm kind of just, like, it's, it's the moon. It's we, fucking cool. We've been like, looking forward to doing I, this since we found out that it was the 50th Yeah, when we were doing planning year. for this season, we definitely were trying to keep an eye out for anniversaries and yeah this one was pretty important exciting so we're really like, this was like we we're building up to this episode the whole the whole season yeah and um kind of goes uh doesn't get much more exciting than this for I mean, the rest of the season i mean note, there's still we interesting did, topics we did a video trailer for this episode and i don't know if any of you saw it or didn't see it but we also as a result launched a youtube channel so we're gonna post about that and um by the time you hear this hopefully you'll have seen that post but and checked out the trailer, but if you haven't, definitely go check it out because it was a cool piece of work that Jonah put together, and also something we're gonna try messing with a little bit more is creating kind of content like that. So it was something I didn't tell Lindsay I was doing until I showed her the final product. Yeah, like a while ago. Like, it was a while ago. I've had it finished for a while. I think since since April. I think it was April. Yeah. Because you showed me at that market. Yeah. Yeah, it was like April. So we've had it. We've been sitting on it for a while, and same with. Uh, for next seasons, we, we, we also are working on a thing for to advertise for our next season. Yeah. So it's got a bit fair way bit of work to do, but it's well, on its way. Yeah. But um, like the whole thing about the moon landing conspiracy and whatnot, I won't go too much into this. But it's like, why is it so difficult to like actually give human beings credit for doing yeah something? for doing something extraordinary? And I mean, why is it so far fetched to think that we did go to the moon? Oh, just really quickly, I just remember this on other. They kind of better prepared for the moon dust on other moon missions. And like, they actually brush. had like brushes and whatnot. <laughs> well, on Apollo 12, the commander, I can't remember his name, but he just ended up, it was still like not Cut working properly. And he just said, basically he was like, fuck it. And just completely stripped out of his suit and was completely naked until he returned to the command module. Because <laughs> he's just so frustrated. Fuck and it. <laughs> Also, wow. quickly, it is not tr that uh, whole story about the Americans spending millions of dollars creating a pen to write in space yeah. while the Russians use pencil. pencils. It's not true. No. They both use pencils, but actually had to switch to pens because graphite yeah. is... It'll spark. It'll it'll spark and it'll cause yeah. shortages because like they'll break yeah. and then bits will get in the instruments and short circuit everything. Which is not great when you're in space. It's definitely not great if you're in space yeah. because there's no way of you getting back. Yeah. And if any of you have seen Gravity, that is the most terrifying concept. Oh, God, yeah. I would not want to be stranded in space. I saw that on the big screen, and that, like, Ooh. really hammered home the existential crisis. I'm sure. Like, I my, I, my, I've, I've, I really enjoyed that movie. Like, um, actually, a bunch of us, when I was still in my undergrad, and uh, we went with a, one of our profs, uh, one of our philosophy profs, and, like, we kind of did this thing in the summer where we tried to like get together to be like, hey, we're going to go check out this cool movie. Like, let's all go together kind of thing. And we try and pick a movie that had some kind of relevance to philosophy. So like 
Um, we went to see, um, oh shit, uh, the World War Z. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that has a lot of like ethical implications, things like that. So then we wanted to go see Gravity. And so because it's really all about existentialism, <laughs> it's a giant existential crisis for like two hours. And you're just like, <sighs> like yeah. dying in your seat. And you're just like, oh God, is she going to, oh God. Imagine that in like IMAX and 3D. Yeah, we Oof. saw it. I don't, I didn't see it in 3D, but we saw it. Yeah, on a big screen. And it had like, it was like AVX. So it like, had the good sound. And you're just oh, like, it was God. scary. Like, yeah. And not because, and and not because anything crazy happens in the movie of like you know implausible crazy thing. It's like, yeah, no, like this is all perfectly plausible if you're in space, and that's just how fucking terrifying it is. Because like, could you imagine? And especially like, it brought up kind of stuff about like, now we send so many like scientists and people who aren't really astronauts to space, right? Because Sandra Bullock's character wasn't actually an astronaut. She'd gone through astronaut training because she's a scientist. Right. And like then now she's on her own and it's like, oh. Yeah. It was a terrifying oh. movie. And I think great movie actually. Like really good, but definitely like, yeah, freaky in that sense. Um, I've heard good things about First Man as well. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard good things though. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. I Biopics, I'm so nervous about biopics all the time, right? Like... I've just seen some great ones, and I've seen some that were really not good. So I'm always nervous about topics that I care a lot about and yeah. going to see the biopic. Yeah, scared they're going to fuck it up, and I'm going to hate it, and it's going to ruin the whole thing. Well, there you go. So. But that's the – we went to the moon. We came. We saw. We thought. We, uh, we should make a little Kevin Lens on the Moon video. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, let's do it. All right. We'll figure it out. But – so that um, just a little bit of housekeeping uh, before we go. Just letting you know, um, we're going on a little break. A little break for about three weeks. Just uh, we got some schedule not conflicts, gonna, but yeah, schedule conflicts, and uh, we got some things that we're working on that we're not going to announce. Yeah, uh, but we got to work on these things, and also we just kind of need a break. Yeah, um, it's been pretty hectic so far this summer, and. But we're still going to keep content going with the blog. We have our first contributor. Um, so we have a post up already on July 8th. Jonah released a, a post about uh, provincial namesakes in Canada. Um, but we have our first contributor coming up on the 22nd. And her name's Crystal, and she's a PhD candidate at the University of Saskatchewan in Indigenous Studies. And she's going to be kind enough to grace our grace us with her presence and write some awesome stuff so check that out um follow us on social media um we post a lot about kevin lately because he's pretty awesome there Uh, there will be a day in the life of kevin during these three weeks three weeks at some point yeah so stay tuned for that yeah um also please subscribe on all of the places you listen to podcasts but also please consider checking us out on patreon and throwing us a fiver or even a dollar we'd really appreciate it yeah it'd be amazing if we can um our budgets we're... are tiny very very tiny yeah um and wardro- and kevin needs a wardrobe so like yes, come on is. people so do you want to i'll let you announce what the next episode is so yeah the next episode is one that i'm super excited about this is so after the moon landing this is the episode i was most excited about doing an idea that I had for some future episodes throughout seasons is to do kind of a history of different like theaters of war and one of the ones I'm really excited to talk about, actually, is submarines. And that's going to be our next one. So it's pretty much like the reverse of going to the moon. Yeah. Same kind of existential crisis, but you're still on Earth, just at the bottom of the ocean. So we're going to talk about just submarines, kind of the development of them, different 
cool things that have happened and also some movies that are great because I maintain that submarine movies are generally always good. There's only one that I can think of that sucks. So. Is it UB1? No. Uh, oh. The new one with Gerard Butler, Hunter Killer. It's I haven't seen that one. pretty garbage. Okay. I watched like five minutes and I was like, I actually need to turn this off. This is not good. Uh, mine is UB17. <laughs> yeah, that one's not, are you 171571 or whatever? Yes, I yeah. hate that movie. It's not good. It's not my favorite, but it's still like a good, I don't like it, but it's still like a good movie. Whereas Hunter Killer is just like, so disappointing. That's fair. I just, you just, you just had all this capital of good submarine movies and then just fucked it up. But we'll yeah. go more, we'll talk, I'll talk more about that when we get to that episode. Exactly. Uh, we only have two more episodes left in the season and then we're taking a, a semester break. A semester break, yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, I don't want to say hiatus, I hate saying hiatus because that's. It's not really true. We're just taking a break to kind of recoup and also focus on a couple other things that will benefit the podcast, like getting money. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Recuperating, recharging our batteries. We've got a fun third season planned. Uh, it's going to be a little something a little bit different for us. So. We have all the episodes planned for season three. We just kind of need to fin- coordinate the dates a little and it's, bit. It's also good. It's going to be something completely different um, than we normally do. We'll explain as it approaches. Yeah. But like, this is how far advanced we are. We know what when we're releasing which episode up until December. Yeah. Which also reminds me, though, if there's other episode topics that people are interested in, please hit us up on social media and tell us, because we're always interested. And we're also hoping to start bringing on some guests and expanding the podcast. But Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. We will be trying to do a other nonsense episode during our break, because, yeah. I mean, we don't have to do any research for that, and it's just basically <laughs> us chilling. Yeah, that's the other thing. Other nonsense is something we're going to hopefully establish a little bit better here. Yeah, so. hopefully we'll be able to do that. I, if we can't, so, we're sorry, but... Like you gotta understand, sorry, like things sorry. are things are kind of crazy in our life, and we'll probably have a guest on that episode. We still need to kind of sort work things out. out, but yeah. So anyway, now we're just rambling, but uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed, and uh, yeah, hopefully you survived this episode with us. It's very long, but very fascinating and awesome. And I'm out of things to say, so yeah, goodbye. <laughs> thank you so much. This is Jonah. And I'm Lindsay. And Kevin's here, too. And we're leaving you with uh, Rocket Man by Elton John. Elton John, because why not? (laughs)